The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Milestones are worthy of celebration, and great achievements doubly so. And at such times, what better opportunity is there for a little self-indulgence and an enjoyment of life's true pleasures? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and birthday boy, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's event, the 100th episode and the end of a special series of podcasts, covers Francois Truffaut's 1966 film of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 starring Oscar Werner, Julie Christie, and Cyril Cusack. My guest is Chris Armsby, and you join us gathered in the front room, exhausted after a frenzy of musical chairs. Hello, Chris. Hello. Well, here we are, 100 podcasts, and I think I'm... Highly entitled to be proud of myself. Yeah, definitely. It's a nice, significant number. Who would have thought six years ago, uh, when, depending on whether or not you count using release order or recording order, I was talking about Freddy Got Fingered with you, or The Avengers with George Grimwood, that six years later, we would have withstood a viral apocalypse. You'd be all slim and handsome in your new uh, snake hit outfit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He's very handsome, ladies. That uh, we would have made it to 100 shows. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, it's slightly jaw-dropping. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like I've done enough to merit it. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's over a week, like two weeks worth of continuous listening. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most people can barely stand to be in the same room as me for an afternoon. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that maybe people like listening to you at a distance, <laughs> so that if they yell at me, I can't answer back. Yes, this is true. Yeah, all they can do is send you tweets. Um, so for the hundredth program, um, I thought I'd do something a little different for the fiftieth show. If you recall. Um, I asked my good friend, Tilda Reiser, to watch two major movies that he'd never seen, Ghostbusters and Speed. And he thought both were fine. <laughs> Which, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but number 100 is you know, it's quite significant. I have to uh, redo the, the listing on the website to, to accommodate the extra digit. And in culminating the series of uh, normally invalid selections... We've had a series of shorts, we've had a TV movie, we've had an unreleased movie, we've had a film with apparently no redeeming features of any kind. So to round that all off, we're going to talk about my favourite film, and that is Francois Truffaut's 1966 adaptation of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I 
first saw it, I think, in 1996, when it was shown on BBC Two in the Movie Drone series. That, too, goes back to the origins of the podcast, because Cinema Limbo was originally pitched to me as picking up where Movie Drone had left off, of being a selection of lesser-known but worthwhile productions. Uh, it was shown very late at night. I watched it, and I was completely enthralled by it. There was just something about it that I seemed to connect with on a very deep personal level. And it's ascended its way up the pantheon of my own personal preferences to the point where I now consider it to be the best film I've ever seen. So, Chris, what do you think? What do you think, Chris? <laughs> no, no pressure. Uh, I would have... I must have seen Fahrenheit 451. It would have been sometime in the 80s. I think we would have been doing the book as part of an English GCSE. Um, All right. And we watched the film. Oh. I thought it was pretentious. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I... You're wrong. <laughs> we can later on. You're, enti you're entitled to your wrong opinion. Later on, we can travel back in time and beat up my thirteen-year-old self if that helps. Oh yeah, we will. Yeah. Yeah. Look out for some scars suddenly appearing. But uh, yeah. Um, but apart from that, I, it was interesting when you said you'd seen it in '96 because I think I. I've got a feeling I must have seen it again sometime in the 90s, but it would have been earlier than 96. So it must have just been at a point when the BBC had it on that kind of once every two years rotation. I think it was also on Channel 4 at some point as part of a Truffaut season. Yeah, that might have been it. And I've, I, uh, interestingly enough, well, it was, was stupid. Sorry, I was about to make a really fatuous thing to say. I've watched it again. Of course I've watched it again. I'm yeah. sitting here talking about it or about to, to, talk, to talk about it. Um... Yeah, I I responded a lot better to it this oh, time. <laughs> Honest, no, honestly, because this could have got nasty. Yeah, um, uh, with some qualifications, but we'll come to those okay. later. Okay. Um, well, Truffaut had read the book in French. Um, Truffaut said that his great regret in life was that he never learned English properly. So this film, which was his first in English, wrong, his first in colour and his only film in English, and his only film made outside France, is quite an oddity. It's his only science fiction film, his only genre film, really. Mm. Um, maybe The Soft Skin is sort of a, a more Hitchcockian film. But Truffaut came from a film criticism background, like me, mm -hmm. um, and had written for uh, Cahiers de Cinéma, had been very involved with the French New Wave. He had written Abu de Souffle, which was the film that put Jean-Luc Godard on the map, and had made several films, most prominently his debut, The 400 Blows, The 400 Coups, which uh, was a partial autobiography of his early life through the lens of this young boy. So in moving away from that kind of New Wave neorealism into something much more fantastical, he was really kind of going out on a limb a bit, mm. along with the fact that he and his collaborator Jean-Louis Richard wrote the script in French, 
and it was then translated into English. And as a result, he was always annoyed that he, he felt that the script was not the way he wanted it, yeah. the English language script, because it didn't come directly from his pen. That if he had learned that if he had learned English properly, and it, it, interesting that he took the blame on himself rather than blaming the translator. Yeah. So, well, if I'd learned English properly, I would have done it properly. Um, he only made in his entire. He also worked as an actor, um, not in this film, but obviously his best known film as an actor is. His Close Encounters. It's yeah. Close Encounters, um, and in that film, virtually all his dialogue is in French, mm. and what little English dialogue there is, he pretty much had to learn uh, oh, phonetically. Yeah. And it, it, in, in that, in fact, her, the, the character who is sort of his, accompanies him and acts as his translator, played by Bob Balaban, in real life, Balaban had to kind of be Truffaut's chaperone when they were filming in, uh, in, um, in Alabama, mm. because on his own, Truffaut was just completely lost and helpless. <laughs> And Balaban's book about the making of Close Encounters, if you can find a copy, is very much worth reading because his relationship with Truffaut is really quite sweet. Yeah. They became really good friends. The film starts with one of the most unusual title sequences I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it caught me by surprise. Um, I showed the film a few years ago to my book group. We used to have movie nights, um, which I would completely monopolise yeah. by choosing the films in a way that was maybe a bit unfair. So no, we're watching this now. Um, so I chose Fahrenheit 451, and that could have gone badly wrong because yeah. before I joined the group, someone, uh, one of the earlier members, had set the group to read his favourite book, which was The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. And it, I haven't read it, and I don't really know what it's about, but everyone in the group hated it. Mm-hmm. And the guy who chose it uh, got in a real huff and never came back. <laughs> It is always a risk, that, that thing of nailing your colours. I, I was uh, put in charge of a book group once for all of about six weeks. No, it must have been longer than that because we did about three or four books. And as we would have the inevitable conversation of what book would everyone like to read next time? And if people couldn't reach a sensible decision or indeed any decision, I used to punish them by making them read books that I liked. Um, and I remember we... The book that got the oddest reaction was Monkey, Journey to the West, which is a book that I genuinely really like a lot, mainly because I think it's incredibly funny. Um, But it didn't get read like that. Um, And people were just slightly baffled and couldn't work out why I'd told them to read it. Um, And that was the last... I think that was... It was shortly after that that I stopped running that book group. Oh, it's interesting that some of the reactions that you get from people because one person read um, a, cons- a Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, yeah. And they didn't realise it was a comedy. And so I just found it really you know, grim and miserable. I had to stop reading it after the first 50 pages. Really? It's, it's funny. What do you mean it's funny? It's not comedy. Yes, it is. So she went back and read it thinking this is supposed to be a comedy and then really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. It's like watching Doctor Strangelove and not realising that there are jokes. Yes. Well, it's because, the, because the subject matter is so difficult. I think the my, my go-to example of that, I've got, I've got two terrific examples of me mis, misreading books. I read Ready Player One as a satire rather oh. than as a wish fulfilment. And I thought it was brilliant. 
And I couldn't work out for ages why people were saying it was such a terrible book because I was convinced it was a satire of a world where culture had dead-ended. And that the... Yeah, that, <laughs> and that sounds like a really interesting, yeah. worthwhile idea. But that's not what the book's about. No, no, it's wish fulfillment. The whole bit with the where he gets the DeLorean from... And uh, it's, the DeLorean's been retrofitted by, into a, like an Ecto-1 from yeah. Ghostbusters... It's not a it's not a satire of people that have no imagination of their own. It's you're meant to, it's aspirational. Yeah. I, I I haven't read the book, but I've seen the uh, film, and I hate that film yeah. so much. And Metamorphosis, I oh. read, literally, I read it as a story of a man who woke up one morning and it turned into an insect. Oh right, so you didn't read that as a satire? No, I read it as a literal, as a straight story. A, th- this is what's actually happening within the book. Yeah. Well, it kind of is, but it's uh, it's meant to be sort of allegorical for yeah, outsiders missed, and things like missed that. Missed all the allegory. Just, I've not read it. Yeah, it, so I can't really say. But I mean, it's it's Kafka. It's go, it's going to be about something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Turns out. I mean, the trial isn't about the difficulty of getting legal aid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might be. I haven't read. It, I haven't read that either. Um. So I showed the I showed the book group Parallel oh, yes, Four Five yeah. One, and right from the opening titles, I could hear people going. Mm. They were not expecting after after they had the normal universal logo, and some I mentioned this in conversation with someone the other day. Wouldn't it have been great if it didn't have any text on it? Yeah, absolutely. The opening titles are spoken aloud over a series of zooms into shots of television aerials, and these are the only titles as well. There are no closing credits. Yeah. So it's very bare bones, and it's you're immediately put into this world where there is no written language. And we, we jump straight from the titles into visual exposition, mm. without even any dialogue. I mean, there's dialogue all the way through the movie. It's a normal movie. But we see the firemen going out on the call um, when they're on their little toy fire engine, which is designed to look like a toy. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a funny piece of kit because that was exactly my response to it. Was the feeling that what you were looking at was a kind of blown up um, Hornby model or something? Yeah. yeah, I was thinking like um, those Brio. You know yeah. the little the little wooden um, railway track that has a little thing. Yes, it's like a little Brio fire engine. Um, and the firemen are supposed to look a little bit like little toy soldiers. Yeah, it's weirdly, weirdly evocative of Camberwick Grey. Yeah, yeah. Because oh God, that had never even occurred to me. But because of the way that they jump onto it, and they're all standing a lot, standing there as it trundles through the countryside. Yeah, it's 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 weirdly. I'm sure it is Camberwick Green, isn't? Or is it Pugley? It's it's the it's the Trumptonshire trilogy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's it might Trumpton, be Trumpton actually, yeah. but it's it's one of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the production design is by Sid Kane, who's a bit of a legend. Okay. Um, so this film has it has an intersection of a lot of major names. Like Truffaut, for whom this is totally atypical. Mm. You know, the, you know, the the saint of French cinema, making a film in English in the UK based on an American novel. Julie Christie, newly minted Oscar winner. Yeah. And star of the biggest film. You know, or pretty much the biggest film of the decade. Um, Oscar Vernon, newly minted international star. Um, Sid Kane, major production designer. 
and the director of photography is Nicholas Roque. Oh, as in later director Nicholas Roque. Who would go on to be maybe the most influential director in British cinema. Christopher Nolan has cited him as his single biggest influence. And I think it's... If I had to do anything in the last hundred episodes of Cinema Limbo again, I would do a Nicholas Roeg film because he's <laughs> the most important British filmmaker of the last 50 years. There are numbers after 100. Yeah, but I have to try and actually think of what to do because mm. I don't want to do any of his later crappier films <laughs> or the episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that he did for the money. Wow. That's the problem. All the films, all the films of his that are good, people have heard of and mm. the ones that people haven't heard of aren't very good. Ah, okay, yes, yeah. That's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Yeah. His performance, Walkabout, Don't Look Now, um, The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, Bad Timing and Eureka. Those are his amazing pieces of work. And then the other ones are not up there. Don't don't really want to talk about those. Castaway, with Oliver Reed. The Witches, which he made for his kids, and is fine, Mm. but it changes the ending to make it nicer. But it's got Rowan Atkinson in a Nicholas Rogue movie, and that kind of fits. Yeah, evens out. I feel that there should have been a Rowan Atkin. There should have been like a Nicholas Rogue Mr. Bean film. I feel like the, the kind of whole fractured time aspect. That's a that's a <laughs> that's a whole uh, that's a whole other podcast. Save it for two hundred. Um, the music as well. Yes. Is Bernard Herrmann, um, who was obviously Alfred Hitchcock's longtime collaborator, although they'd fallen out by this point. Um, and Truffaut really gained international fame, not just from his um, film work, but from the interviews he conducted with Alfred Hitchcock, which were published mm-hmm. in book form. And it was really the first serious uh, appreciation of Hitchcock as a, as a filmmaker, and as an artist, rather than just the guy who makes all the suspense movies that yeah. people like. Um, and with Herman having sort of ended his relationship with Hitchcock um, when Truffaut was interested in so was looking into who was going to do the music for the film uh, he initially looked at um, modernist composers like Karlheinz Stockhausen but he, he wound up talking to Herman and Herman said well you know if you're doing the science fiction then you're, you're not doing um, you know science fiction type music mm. and Truffaut replied well they're going to give me the music of the 20th century but I want you to give me the music of the 21st. Okay. And I think the thing is that a modernist composer like Stockhausen would not give the emotional impact. Mm -hmm. Herman's music is so emotional and so passionate and so evocative, and that's what the film needs. Yes. Yeah, I think it does does a lot of heavy lifting at times. It certainly makes the... uh, it really picks up the opening. So just the sequences of the fire engine trundling through the streets. It, it's, it's very bold yeah. and energetic. Slightly reminiscent of, uh, is it North by Northwest? A little, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, we have the no dialogue so far. The fireman going out on mm. a job um, and suddenly a phone call comes through to a flat where a man is told, you've got to get out. The firemen are coming and it's told through a series of cuts Yes. as it cuts closer and closer to him with each line of dialogue, which is a, 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 a weird experimental way. There are lots of strange uses yeah. of editing and camera work throughout the film as Truffaut is taking the opportunity to be much more experimental than he had been previously. Um, 
later on it's like bits of the screen get blacked mm. out bits run backwards yeah it's all it's there's there's uh, all, there's also uh, through a quite a few times through the film enough that I, I noticed them but sort of stopped counting them he's obviously snipped out the middle portions of scenes and there'll be a there'll be a noticeable frame jump without actually there being any of it and it's obvious that somebody's decided that a scene is running slightly too long and they've just snipped a tiny little bit out in the middle and so there'll be a jump but you kind of you'll be aware of it but you won't necessarily be able to say what's changed hmm. um they all have a slightly disruptive effect on the process of watching films and i think i assumed it was deliberate to be honest yeah, it stops you from from getting too much into that. I'm I'm wrapped up in this story. It it distances you and makes you realise that you're watching a film again. Well, it's interesting that um, Bradbury refers to Fahrenheit four five one as I think his only science fiction novel. Oh, okay. He doesn't regard the Martian Chronicles as being science fiction, um, but I think the film is more of a fable. Yeah. Does does Bradby then consider them to be more fantasy, or I suppose it's lost track? Possibly, I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was. He did something wicked. This way comes, didn't he? That's not science fiction by any stretch. No, no, it's fantasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the the book of Fahrenheit four five one is much more science fictional, mm. and it's much there's a lot more thought given into the the social structure of of yeah. this of this environment with. Um, like uh, billboards on the motorway that are sort of stretched so that they look normal as you drive past at okay. high speed. And um, the fire brigade have a mechanical hound. Yes, yeah. Which was left out of the film because it was completely unworkable. Yeah, it doesn't have eight legs or something. It has eight legs and it's yeah. got needles for a face or something. I just, I, I saw that, I saw a reference to that and I just thought that that would look awful. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond the technology of the time to look. Convincing. I'm not surprised they left it out. Mm. So the um, the man who's been phoned, who's uh, billed as the man with an apple. Oh, is that? Oh, that's the man with the apple. Yeah. There's so many apples in this film. The that, apple of knowledge, of course. Yeah, it took. It did. I, I did get there eventually. But yes, all the way through the film, there's so many apples that I couldn't quite work out which man with an apple I was meant to be looking at. Well, that's it. He he runs out of the building and makes a run for it, just as the fire brigade arrive and fall into step, marching into the building and search the flat. Um, one of them notices that there's cigarette ash still burning, so the occupant has only recently left. But they search and they find books, because that's what yes, they're Yes, because at this point, of course, you don't know what they're looking All you know is they're coming, or the firemen are coming. Yeah. But you don't know what they're looking for, yes. Um, in a lampshade, in a false television mm. everywhere you look um one fireman even picks up the apple to take a bite and has it slapped out of his hand yes yes which is obviously as you say is the if you the, the apple of knowledge so yes of course the firemen are not allowed to eat of the forbidden fruit mm. they, they, however tempted they might be yeah um the books are slung into a cloth bag and then dropped over the side of the balcony to the ground. And it drops into slow motion. As the, and again, it's that thing of, it disrupts the flow of watching the film because suddenly the speed changes. It's, 
it doesn't it doesn't disrupt it for me. It doesn't drop me out okay. in the way that you describe. I don't it. I don't necessarily it, it's mean sort of it's it's using editing as a way of illustrating something. It makes it feel like like a, a crime is being committed yeah. by dropping the books over the side. I don't necessarily mean when I talk about it being disruptive. I don't I don't actually mean it in a negative way. Weirdly enough, years ago I couldn't couldn't tell you when I happened to catch the French Lieutenant's Woman on television, mm-hmm. and that starts with a clapperboard being snapped shut, and then the and it was, we, I, I watched the film hypnotised for about the next 20 minutes because I wanted to see whether they would break the realism of the film again. It was just, again, it was it, it actually made whatever the hell the French Lieutenant's Woman is about. I don't know. I guess there's a lady in it somewhere. But it made it more exciting because I was watching it going, are they going to punch other? And so when I sort of talk about these moments being disruptive, I don't mean it as a bad thing in a way right. but just as a almost as I say as a process of going no you are watching don't you dare take part in this don't take part in this story like the cousins do later on mm. you are watching it from a distance the books are piled onto a little outdoor brazier and um, very haphazardly just thrown mm. on a uh, few of them fall off the side and a little boy picks up one yes. and starts flicking through it and one of the firemen, played by Anton Diffring, whose name's in it, I think his name's only said once, he's called Fabian. Yeah. Eyes um, the, the man standing next to the boy. Uh, as yeah. though, you know, saying, are you going to do something about that? Eventually the man just grabs the book out of the boy's hand and throws it onto the pile with the others. Um, I guess that's a note I've got, that the idea of throwing the books over the side as though the books are people. Yeah. And of course later we'll see some people who are books. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, um, Montag, our main character, is putting on the um, uh, flamethrowing gear, mm. but the scene is played in reverse. And this is where the idea for the, for the backwards material came from, is that it was pretty much impossible for Oscar Werner to put the um, helmet on smoothly in one movement because right. of the, just the, with the flaps and everything it was just too difficult so they filmed them taking it off and in editing they played it in reverse and of course it goes on smoothly yeah. as it comes off smoothly so that gave Herzog the idea of Herzog <laughs> Truffaut the idea of having other scenes playing backwards and we, and we see this throughout the movie yeah. moments of behaviour that are unnatural to the to the world yeah and you can't quite you, you, you it gives things an odd motion and again it's unsettling but you can't it's uncanny valley isn't it people and people are, and things are moving wrong but you can't tell why yes I tried I actually you know I I don't like stopping films rewinding bits of them but I, but I noticed with that but yes I did go back and rewind over the sequence of him getting put, putting on the fire, uh, putting on the fireman's kit because I couldn't at first work out why it looked so peculiar. Mm. But the books are burned with the little bollards around. I, 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 like, I like that recurring image of these little mm. wheeled bollards with the flashing blue light on top uh, as the 
fire captain watches from the uh, fire engine nearby. He calls Montag over and uh, he asks him, he asks him about books, but I haven't actually said what he, but, oh yes, he, what sort of books were they? Oh yes. Oh, yeah. oh novels mostly, sir. And he asks Montag about his hobbies. Mm. So what's, what does Montag like to do on his day off? So, oh, just mow the lawn. And if, and if it was forbidden to mow the lawn, so just watch it grow. So he's a, he's a good little apparatchik. Yes. And it's this something again, it's about the fact that he refers to Montag almost in the third person. It's just, again, it's it gives it a, a very a very odd, it gives his character an odd kind of edge. Yes, he's, he's placing himself separately, but throughout mm. the movie there is a... Um, a deliberate uh, alienation between characters. Yeah. The way that culture has been suppressed, the way that em- as a result of empathy seems to be fading away and people are becoming less and less emotionally engaged with each other. Yeah. So referring to Montag in the third person when I'm talking to him directly, yeah, I think it's it connects to that as well, as well as him demonstrating his position. And of course, he's still sitting up on the fire truck. Yes. Uh, well, he... The captain has good news because Benedict is leaving the fire service, meaning that Montag will likely be promoted to take his place. Um, uh, and then we see Montag taking the monorail home. Yes. Uh, the monorail is actually uh, in Olia, or was in Olia, and they went there specially for a couple of days just to film scenes of it going by and uh, Oscar Werner and Julie Christie getting in and out. But as he's riding on it, still in his full uniform, by the way. Yes. Um, he watches the other people in the carriage, and there's one woman tracing the outline of her lips with her yeah. finger. There's another kissing her reflection in the window. A man rubs his shoulder underneath his sweater. Yeah. So it's this um, need for affection, a need for emotional connections is, is kind of turning inwards. Yeah, it's weirdly tactile. I think there's there's several sequences. There's people like stroke jumpers and yes. things like that. Yeah. The way that they would have a, a connection or a physical or emotional connection with another person. Yes. It's now, they have to have it with themselves or just with the, with the, the, the textures of yeah. their clothes. I think kissing the reflection in the mirror, particularly, in the reflection yes, of the yeah. window. Yes, I missed, I missed that. I don't think I saw that one. But Montag is being watched by another woman with short blonde hair. And everybody's pretty much blonde, aren't they? That's the other thing, is that the film has... I just... Everybody has a very, very uniform look, I thought. And I did it at one point. It felt like almost everybody in the film was, was blonde or at least quite light. Yeah. Well, Montag's wife, we later see, has long, dark hair. Yeah, well, so much for my pals of Because, uh, and there's a reason why she has dark hair as opposed to blonde. Um, but she and Montag got off the train at the same stop in the middle of nowhere because yes. it was a, a test monorail line and they didn't have the stations. And she introduces herself. Her name's Clarice. And she's very friendly. She lives in the same neighbourhood as Montag. And she's very... Chirpy and effervescent mm. and quite persistent. Quite persistent, yeah, yeah. yes. And she lives, says that she lives with her uncle and she talks a lot and he says that she's a veritable well of words. And Montag notes that she's not frightened by his uniform at all yeah. in a way that other people are. 
Um, but um, it's mentioned that it could be the smell of kerosene that he still has on him. And Montag says, well, I, I don't think of it as like that. I think of it being more like a perfume. And she asks him about the number he has on his shoulder flash, mm. 451. And he says, oh, that's the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. That's actually not true. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, when uh, Bradbury was writing the book, he rang up the local fire brigade and asked them, what's the temperature at which book paper catches fire? And the man on the phone said, oh, hang on, I'll just go and check. Comes back a moment later. Oh, it's 451 degrees Fahrenheit. Bradbury says, okay. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And, and he says in interviews on the DVD, I have no idea whether or not that's true. Mm. But the number sounded right, so I thought, yeah, that's good. Let's go with that. Um, Clarice also asks if firemen ever put out fires. And Montag is sort of aghast at the notion. He's affronted by it. Yeah, what a ridiculous notion. Houses have always been fireproof. And that shows how culture and history have been suppressed. Yeah. Um, And that he's in the fire brigade because it's a good job. We burn, we burn the books to ashes, and then we burn the ashes. I mean, just, you know, saying you like books is saying that you, you like the rain. Yeah. And Clarice says, well, I love the rain. And that's a very obvious clue yeah. as well to, to Clarice's behaviour. He says, oh, yeah, books are you know, rubbish. They're no interest. And they're banned because they make people unhappy and antisocial. And Clarice says, well, am I antisocial? It's like, she couldn't be giving more clues. <laughs> no, no, she is, uh, yeah. But she mentions that um, she had an assessment at her work where she's a teacher uh, and that she thinks it didn't go well. But um, they get to her house and it's very old-fashioned looking. Yeah. And non-fireproof. And non-fireproof as well. But before they part, Clarice asks, have you ever read a book? And Montag, said, Montag delivers what sounds like a very rehearsed answer. Obviously it's, mm. it's written. But it sounds like he's had to memorise this or, or think of it some time ago, that he's, he's not interested in it, he's busy doing other things, and in any case, it's illegal. Yeah, and that's... Do you think he's already reading books at this stage? No. Do you, you know? Because I've got... The one thing that... That one question turns his life around. Have you ever read books? And he did, and. Uh, I think it's the next question. Oh, okay. That Clarice asks him, and the last thing before they part is, are you happy? And he says, of course I'm happy. And he sounds so not happy. Yeah. And he, as he, he says that as he's turning and walking away. Of course I'm happy. Yeah. And he looks miserable. And it's as though there's, there's an itch in his brain that he's never been able to identify. Yeah. And he's starting to be able to put his finger on it. He's starting to realise what the thing is that's been bothering him. Mm. He gets home, and I've written here, they live in a, he lives in a hideous new town. In fairness, it doesn't actually look that bad. I quite, I quite liked it. There's some nice trees. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more that it feels a little bit like... It's just a little bit soulless. Like, it's too new. Yeah. It hasn't been lived in properly. It's shot in winter as well, which doesn't help. So, effectively, a lot of the trees in the foreground are just sticks. That's true. 
it's actually a normal street in um, Crowthorne in Berkshire, mm. which I think is a, must have been a new town. Yeah, new I think so, town. Yeah. But it looks, in, uh, I must admit, much more attractive and homely than somewhere like Poundbury, which is yeah. Prince Charles's pet village. Yeah, his idea. Which looks like, you know, it looks like where the, the inner party lives in 1984. <laughs> It's all very nice and clean and built by robots yeah. and inhabited by robots. And to live there is to wish you were dead. Yeah. Um, and he gets home and his wife, Linda, is watching a self-defense program on the wall screen. Yes. And Linda looks almost exactly like Clarice, yeah. except she has long, dark hair. And they're both played by Julie Christie. Yes. How do you feel about that choice of having Julie Christie play both characters? It doesn't, it doesn't, I think it works within the context of the film. I think it perhaps makes, it perhaps makes Montag's dilemma a bit too obvious in that he's effectively, he's choosing, he's choosing between two versions of the same thing, if that makes any sense. There's obviously this happy, poppy, questioning little blonde haired Julie Christie, and there's tranquilized. Um, brown-haired Julie Christie, and I suppose the, the, the one criticism you can perhaps make of it is it, is it does it uh, makes his choice too obvious in a way? There's no real surprise as to why he goes one way rather than the other. Do you see the choice though as being a choice between two women or a choice between two lifestyles? I think that's oh yes, between two lifestyles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Bradbury didn't like this. Yeah. Uh, in particular, because Clarice is supposed to be much younger. Okay. Book. And he liked the idea of an older man learning from uh, someone younger and right. sort of be, getting an intellectual awakening from someone who is technically much less experienced in the world than him. Which is, I think, it's, it's kind of the opposite of Nigel Neal in The Last yeah. Mass, where it's all about the old rescuing the young yes, from yeah. their foolishness. Yeah. Um, but I like the, the concept of Clarice and Linda being like two halves of the same person. Yeah. Clarice is the person who Linda could have been. Yes. And and Linda is not necessarily, she's not a bad person. In fact, I think there's a case for arguing later on in the film that Montague is actively cruel to her. Um, okay. We'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Because I, I, I think I know what you mean and that you might have a good point there. But... Linda is very happy in her yeah. cosy, tranquilized existence. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, the, 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 there is. She's not aware of any alternatives. Is I think that no, she doesn't yeah. think. Yeah, she's watching a self-defense program on television, but because it's on, because it's on. But she's just sitting watching it. Yeah. She's not, you know, trying to imitate it yeah. or. You know, seemingly engaging with it in any way. It's just what it's just moving wallpaper, yeah. literally. It's it's what I used to. Ironically, it's what I used to do as a kid when I watched TV. I remember sitting down and turning the TV and watching the most awful rubbish because the BBC had gone to the trouble of broadcasting it, <laughs> and it would be rude not to not to watch it. <laughs> yeah, but it's just there. And ironically, she is watching the the wall screen. I think is slightly smaller than my current TV set. I don't. Th I think it is a bit bigger. Okay. I'm looking at your television now. 
does have quite a big television. Yeah, sorry. But, well, it needs to be that big for all your uh, copies of Space 1999. <laughs> yeah. So that you can see all the stars in the background. Oh, you can see the precise moment when the hope leaves Martin Landau's eyes. <laughs> But, um, you can watch the, or, or you can see how out of focus all the shots of Barbara Bain are yeah. in the second season. But um, it's funny, and this must be something I'm remembering from the book. I thought the wall screens were literally walls. In the book, they are. Yeah, I think I must have misremembered. But again, in 1966, yeah, that's the not really possible. Just not there, is it? Um, As it is, very, very creditable flat screen. Yeah, in terms of pure science fiction and in terms of, you know, predicting future trends, does a really good job of predicting what TV sets are going to look like. Yeah. So um, Linda doesn't greet Montag no. as he gets home. And he kisses, he sort of kisses her on the top of the head. And she has a very slow reaction to, and he's, you know, talking about his day and how he's, you know, might be up for promotion. Yeah. And very slow response. And her reaction isn't that she's happy for him or that his career is going well. It's that they'll have more money and can afford a second wall screen. Yes. It's all goes back to the self and back to yeah. more tranquilization. Yeah, more things. Like a like a like a junkie. Yeah. Like an addict. She's addicted to living in this safe, cozy bubble. Um, and she's also taken some pills because because what else I mean drug use is perfectly normal. Yeah. In the book, it goes, I think, quite a lot further that that hedonism is perfectly normal, that people drive around, you know, and, and crash their cars, and it's all, um, you know, per- just part of life, that you know, terrible things happen and no one really cares. Yeah. <laughs> and li- the thing that Linda is excited about, however, is that she's got a role in a TV yes. play that it's kind of an, it, it, it's like, again, Bradbury predicting interactive television. Mm that she's going to have one of the parts in this television play that's happening in about five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's on now. Yeah. Um, God, it's rubbish. And, <laughs> yeah, well, the, also the announcers on the television are referred to as cousins. Yes, which I like. That, that's such a, that's one of those weirdly plausible little details that also seems sinister. I just, I liked it. I like the naming of them as cousins. It seems... They're, they're like, referring to them, they're family, they, they're your family. Yeah, but um, not, not, clo- not close not, family. No, not close. Not ones you have a really good relationship. I've got loads of cousins, yeah. and I think half of them I've never even met. Yeah, but still, and they're probably all nice people. But, but sort of people that you'd welcome into your home without necessarily knowing who they were, but you know you've got a connection with them. So yeah, yeah, there's something... I, I, I really like that. Mm. And um, Linda says, oh, it's being introduced by cousin Sylvie or someone, mm. you, know, you know, the one you don't like. Yeah. And Montag says, I don't like any of them. Um, but the play starts, and it also has, there's a, dis- there's a disclaimer at the start, that any resemblance to real life is purely coincidental. Yeah. And then the play starts, and it is the most banal, inane yeah. thing. It's two men having a conversation about... Sleeping arrangements yeah. for a group of pe- group of people and various children coming to stay, and it's it's like a maths problem that's been dramatised. Yeah. And so, oh, and someone will have to sleep in the the green bedroom. And he turns to the camera and says, "What do you think, Linda?" 
and Linda, and then the red light, bed, and then a red light comes on as this man steps. This very frightening looking man yeah. is staring straight into the camera, and Linda's almost too flustered to say anything. Yeah. But excited, not but 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 it's the most passion that you know. She, she's flustered because she's excited, and you can't believe she's doing it. You know, yeah, it's and so she it, gets three lines. She gets three lines, and it's sort of yes or no or what have you. And it ends with the, the two men turning to the camera saying, Linda, you're amazing. Again, in this weird, blank, passionless way. Yeah. And Linda is absolutely delighted by this. Yes. She's thrilled. She's, oh, oh, I could have been an actress. Uh, as Montague is reading the newspaper, which is, consists entirely of textless comic yeah. strips. There's so much effort gone into creating a world without written yeah. language. We'll talk about the remake later. Oh, yes. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the remake too much because I don't want to get too angry. But it makes zero effort. Okay. <laughs> this is, everything's thought through. Yeah, he comes and reads the paper, but the paper has no text. So how is that going to work? So it's all done with comic strips. Yeah. There's even, uh, uh, just on a production level, the earlier shots where they're filming on the Alton Estate in Roehampton, I think they've cleaned graffiti off the walls behind the actors because they don't want any written stuff in the background either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. It's it, it's it's a very very it's a very thorough piece of world building. So that's what happens when you hire Sid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Montag is just uh, he is he has his unimpressed. Yeah, by this as we are, and Linda's really upset. There's a jump cut, isn't? Doesn't it close it? It doesn't it go for a close up on Montag, and then it cuts to like several hours later, and they're suddenly in bed, and she's still talking about it. Yeah, yeah, and and Montag but, makes. Oh, her, oh, her friends are going to be so jealous that she was involved, and yeah, Montag says, "Well, you know, they could have just had rung up all five thousand people called Linda, which and they're is, all doing it." Which is exactly what I was thinking at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and it really it 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 spoils her mood a bit. He's he's already seeing through the facade, yeah. in a in a very casual way. So there's, there's that that thing working in his head, yeah. um, and Linda is watching a little video screen on her bedside table, yeah. which prefigures me watching YouTube videos in bed. Yes, so Bradbury predicting that as well. I wonder, yeah. I wonder if he knows what I'm having for dinner tomorrow. Um, and we move to the following day as the fire fire engine comes back from a call. And we get another bit of backwardsness because the firemen get off the fire engine and then they go back up the pole. Yeah. Yes, that's such a that's a lovely visual gag for want of a better phrase. It, it's, it, is, it is it is kind of a joke, but it also works as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Because it because it then has relevance later on. And uh, one of Montag's colleagues says, oh, here you are, a promotion, well done. And that is the most uh, emotional connection Montag yeah. has with anyone, apart from Clarice. That one line of dialogue from someone whose face we can't see, <laughs> because obviously the mouth isn't going to match, because it's playing backwards. Yes. Um, and so they're up in the, um, the little sort of uh, social area. Mm. And there's some people playing cards, and they're playing cards with circular playing cards. Oh, I did miss that. Yeah. I only saw it this time. I thought, I 
comes a pack of circular playing cards. They're, no they're normal playing cards, yeah. but they're round. And I thought, that's a, what a weird thing to have. So I bought them years ago. And so must have, I don't know if there was yeah. some kind of connection there. But as the fire engine goes off on another call, Montag goes into the fire students class. Yeah. Where two of the students are sitting together and shouldn't be. Yeah, so it's never really, I don't think we're ever really told what they've done. They're just, they're constantly in trouble. They became friends. Oh, is that it? <laughs> Matt, that's, the, that's the way I read it. I'm they're, really, si they're sitting next to each other because they're friends and you're not allowed to have friends. I'm really taking against this dystopia. Yeah. It doesn't I mean, seem like a very nice these, place. These guys are real jerks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in fact, they're summoned to mm. the captain's office. Montag takes over the class and is teaching them how to conceal books yeah. around the house because in order to know how to find things, he has to know how to hide them. And he's got prop books, which are blank. Yes, and it was the fact as well that you suddenly think, yes, of, of course they're not going to use real books because real books are... I, I, it was just that, again, that because that, at one point he's got a couple of book-sized pieces of wood, Yeah, I think. And, yeah, it's just that odd thing. Going, yeah, of course they wouldn't use real books for training because somebody might look inside them. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I assume that in the, you know, the, the drug squad or whatever, when they don't use real drugs, they use bags of yeah. sand or sugar or, or, um, or meth. Um, but Montag is showing you how, how good he is, you know, hiding books in a toaster, mm. hiding books in objects that aren't book-shaped, yeah. which is a great one. And I, I, all of this comes back later on. All of this is carefully seeding these ideas for later on in the movie. Um, but Montag too is summoned to the office and says, oh, practice, practice hiding things. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's like the, um, you, know, you know, switching on the television and watching what's up, whatever's on. The car's looking like toys. These are adults, but they're being treated like children. Yeah. It's this whole infantilized world. Yes, the idea that they have to be trained how to look for things in the most basic Places. All you yeah. All you have to do is just search a house and turn it from top to bottom, yeah. and you'll find things there. Yeah. You know, tap the walls and look for you know, listen for hollow bits. This isn't difficult, really. It's a lot of it's common sense if you're looking for a book. But, but you're relying on people using their imagination and their intuition, and those are being drummed out of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, one time is told by the captain that you know, wait outside for five minutes. This, this won't take long. As he goes into absolutely read the riot act mm. to the two recruits who there's, a, there's such an interesting shot where they're we see we see so partially into the chief's yeah. office through this sort of marbled glass and the two recruits are sort of marching backwards and forwards as the chief's yelling at them and we can't quite hear what he's saying but we have this very ominous sinister music over the top mm. again putting um, Herman's skill and his his experience with Hitchcock and suspense music, putting that to good use. Yeah. And yes, there's a... It's almost like they've built a viewing port into the wall so that you can stand there and look and see what's going on. And again, I suppose it's like, yeah, it's just look, looking at more pictures or something. Mm. Yeah. They're sent out and the chief talks to Montag and he asks him all about sport. Yes. 
Oh, do you like do you like golf, Monte? Oh, very much so. Oh, what about football? Oh, wonderful. And hockey? Oh, great. And lists are like seven or eight more yeah. sports. And Montag has a different, really positive thing to say yeah. about all of them. Um, yes, yes, more sports for all. Keep, keep people busy. And that made me think of how indoor kids would suffer in a world like this. The people who like to stay at home and, and they don't really like the outside. And you wouldn't. Well, you'd stay in and watch the wall screwing, wouldn't you? But it's just nothing. It's just... It's people with their idiot plays. I mean, what kind of sitcom would you get in a world like that? Terry and June. <laughs> Ooh, take that, Terry Scott. Yeah, 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 no, it's me sitting there in 1978 watching the Space Sentinels because there's nothing else on, or Big John, Little John, all these terrible... But did you, did you gain anything from those? N- nostalgia? You know, it, they were com- they were comforting. You know, it was this thing that that it was. What do I do? I'm at home. What do I do? I don't know. I'll watch TV. And yeah, you know, you it didn't occur to you to read a book. Uh, Did you know, know how to read? This was around. This would have been around the time where I was. Uh, uh, this was around the time when I was learning to read. Knocking around somewhere. I don't think it's upstairs. Um, I have the first book I ever read by myself. Oh, it's called Dan Dandy and the Queen of Sheba, and it's about a little dog and a big dog, and the the things and the messes that they get into, and it's beautifully illustrated. It's oh. actually an ex remaindered library book from Ripon Libraries in nineteen seventy eight. I think it cost the princely sum of five p. Um, and yeah, it's it's the typical. It's it's obviously an old sixties sixties book with. Beautiful black and white line illustrations. It's a, you know you can I can see why I wanted to read it as a kid. Nice big friendly text. Nice pictures to look at. Dogs. What's not to like? But the space sentinels carried more attraction. They had a man with the strength of a hundred men, and a man another man called Mercury who could run very very fast. And there was a woman there as well, and she I think she could change shape. As, is, as was traditional for women in bad science fiction. Right. That sounds shit. <laughs> but it makes sense that you'd be drawn more to the, the flashy yeah. um, you know, excitement and generic silliness yeah. than something of value like a story about a couple of nice dogs yeah. that you might engage with emotionally. You know better now, of course. Yes. Well, we'll look, look at it this way. It's now quite a few years later. I don't have the Space Sentinels on DVD, but I still have Dandy and the Queen of Sheba. That's true. But you also have uh, Space 1999 Year 2 on Blu-ray. Yes. You can buy the two seasons separately, you know. <laughs> um, as they're talking, Montag looks at the Chief's watch. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I, I try to figure out what that might tie into, but he sort of glances down at it, and then the, the Chief just covers it over with his sleeve. Are there? There's a few shots. I think most of them come up later on. They're very oddly framed, and they look like they've been zoomed in. Yes, there's so, there's, there's one towards the end. That's so very it's cool. not because I I genuinely wasn't sure whether I somehow picked up a. I, I don't know whether my copy of the film wasn't entirely legit because it had the look of when you're looking at hokey videos on. Uh, on the internet and they've been zoomed in or they've been cropped in odd ways. Mm. I 
Yeah, I don't know. I guess that bit with the watch means something, but it, mm. it kind of possibly goes. But there's a whole... Oh, he's checking the time because it's going to take five minutes. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Where we are then. Um, yes, no, 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 that wasn't. But uh, uh, the chief also brings out Montag's file, mm. uh, which is full of pictures of him marked with numbers, but he only has six back views. Yeah. And there are, so there's a strip of pictures of just of the back of Montag's head. And that will come back later yeah. as well. But it's it's this nice kind of unspoken threat that he isn't sufficiently conforming to these arbitrary rules. Mm. And I suppose that's it, because I sat there and went, why do they need 12 pictures of the back of his head? But they, they just, just do. do. Yeah, exactly. That's the, and that's the whole thing about the, the promotion. There's a weird hint of bureaucracy in it, in that it's obvious that Montag's going to be promoted because the other guy's gone and it's apparently Montag's turn. But there's still, there's a procedure that must be gone through. He must be spoken to by the officer in charge. He must have a formal interview. He must have all the correct photographs. And also, and he's obviously nervous and there's an idea that he won't, he won't get the promotion, but if, you know, it's, it's odd. There's a, there's a whole sense of the society running on rails and everything's, everything's running in the pattern. It always does, but people are still a bit nervous in case it doesn't. It's yeah. Yeah. Uh, Monta gets home and finds that the, the screen is on, oh, yes. on static. It's on the white channel, isn't it? Yeah. It's, well, it's the snow channel. Yes. Snow channel. Uh, and that Linda is unconscious. Mm. So he phones up the the phone and uh, is able to speak to someone. And they say, oh, um, hello, this is such and such listening. Yes. Not speaking. No. Listening. Which I thought was tremendously sinister. Again, it's like the cousins thing, yeah. And they have phones all over their house. Yeah. And you just pick, you carry on the same conversation. You move from one phone to another, but you carry on the same conversation. And all the phones are antiques. That's the end. Yes, it's that kind of recycling the past. Mm. Yeah, like, Ready, like Ready Player One. Yeah. Recycling the past is something new. In the same way with the, um, the cutthroat razor. Yes. The latest thing. Yeah, and then the old thing, and, and she throws out the electric yes. yeah. because that's that's now it's not it doesn't matter that it works. It's now ready to be disposed of. Yeah, it's that consumerism lie again. But um, Linda's apparently taken an overdose. Yeah, by accident. By accident, because yeah. yeah, she might have because there's all these drugs. She, might, she right. might have had a feeling or something. Um, she's taken what is it? Red. Red number three and gold. Some. Oh, oh well, yeah. See, that's pretty. You know, you're not supposed to have those together. Um, so some some paramedics arrive, but they're not really paramedics. They're basically plumbers. Yeah. With their weird plastic smocks. And their slightly inappropriate attitude as well. Yeah, yeah, they behave like plumbers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just pump out. Pump, yeah, let's pump her out. Pump in some new blood. And then they're having this whole conversation about, go get her stockings off. And then... Yeah, that's a bit unpleasant. And then somebody else, they they make some other comment and and doesn't... I forget exactly what's said, but one of them goes, there's no time... One of them makes a kind of almost like, cool, look at that comment. And and it's like, no, there's no time for that. Just... Yeah. 
get the get get the giant sewage, whatever the hell it is they're going to do, because they're just going to replace her blood, aren't they? Yeah. Because that's what you do, because everything... Because that's fine. Yeah, I mean... Everything's disposable. This... It's a it's a medical emergency, but it's it's fine. Yeah. And Linda's going to be fine. But it's... It's just dealt with so casually. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't want to have someone with that kind of attitude doing my appendectomy. No. I want someone to take it seriously and not ogle me. Like Ian ogle me. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but Montag reacts in a what looks to us like a perfectly reasonable way. Yes. But it's, I think, in the context, it's unnatural yeah, it's because clear he's, that he's, he's worried. Yeah. And he sits outside and he's clearly really worried. Yeah. Which is odd because they have basically no relationship at all. Well, it, it comes and goes. You you can see moments when they genuinely do have a relationship. And there's almost the sense that it's later, again, it's later on, it's in the sequence when he he, he forcibly reads a, a paragraph at that. The paragraph is all talking about, isn't it talking about somebody's relationship and how it entered into a relationship? because he thought he could change the person. Yes. And I, th- I get the impression that Montag has chosen that paragraph very deliberately because he feels that that sums up his relationship with Linda and that there was obviously something there, or, or they were both just doped up on purple or something. Mm. And um, yes, he's he's changed or, or he's frustrated because he finds he can't, he finds that the person he's now sharing a house with is this drugged up zombie. Mm. But he still cares for her. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the pl- one, of him, one of the plumbers uh, is, is played by Arthur Cox, who you might recognise as Cully from the Doctor Who serial The Dominator. It, that bothers me all the way through that. I had to go back and check that afterwards, and it was a moment of revelation when I realised exactly. And it's it's the year before, I think, isn't it? Two, this is two years, two years oh, before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the issue, I mean, one issue with the problem with the film is that because all the opening titles are at the start, mm. because they're read aloud, only the first five or six members of the cast are actually credited. Um, like the incredibly intense actor from the TV play, I don't know who that is yes. because the IMDb listing is vague. Yeah. Well, it's um, like I said, it credits Man with Apple, and that could have been one of half a dozen men, have it? Well, it's, I think it's the man who spends yeah. most most time reading reading an apple. Yes. Reading an apple and eating a book. Although someone does actually eat a book at one point. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, It's the one who isn't Donald Pickering, because the other one is Donald Pickering. The other thing that's really interesting about those credits is they're not... If they were written, they're, they're not as men... Who's in the cast? I cannot tell you, because the credits are spoken. And it turns out that when stuff is spoken at me, it's not as memorable as, a, as when I read it. Absolutely. I found that myself, that if I need to remember something, I write it down. Hmm. It doesn't matter then that I ha- have the note with me. Yeah. Or, you know, that I even that I even keep the note. The fact that I wrote it down is the act of me- remembering yeah. it. Yeah. Things survive through print, through memory. Uh, as the plumbers are leaving, one of them tells uh, Montag that um, she'll be fine. Don't worry. She'll sleep through the night, wake up in the morning, and she'll be she'll have, she'll an, be, appetite. She'll have an appetite for all sorts of things. Yes, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, don't like that. I don't, no, I don't like. I feel I don't think these two are very professional. 
And so the following morning, Montag wakes up in his red pyjamas, matching the firehouse. Yes. And Linda is already up and she's making yeah, breakfast yeah. and she's all overexcited. She's more energetic than I think we've seen her at this point. And, and I always get the impression that she's, she's more back to the person that she was when she first met Montag. Yeah, because all the tranquilizers are out of her system. Yeah. And Montag wants to have a talk with her seriously. And she says, oh, yes, talk all you like if it makes you happy. Mm. So she still has that mindset. Yeah, if you want to talk, you talk. I'm not going to listen. Yeah. And then she trips him up using the same self-defence move that she saw on the telly the other day. Yeah. Oh, no, she's, she's got him the straight razor as a gift. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. That, well, then we have that. Um, oh, yeah, she uses the judo through to get him onto the bed. And that's in yeah. slow motion as well. Mm. And that, that scene goes on for a, sort of a weirdly long time. Yeah. And it's... There's, there's romantic music, but as it fades out, it ends almost on a scare chord. Yeah. And it's a recurring thing all the way through the music that the music pieces, the, the music cues, never really resolve properly. They always end on these extra chords and extra notes. Hmm. Uh, Montag's back on the monorail and he's thinking as Clarice watches him. And then we cut away to um, some some of the firemen harassing That's, some young people. Yeah. Yes, long-haired people. Yeah, and it's it seems to be like a um, it's like a newsroom. Like a newsroom, yeah. And they're referred to as messy know-it-alls. And again, it's they don't conform. It's how dare they look slight? They look slightly different. To yeah, them. and it's not that they they don't even look. Their hair isn't that long. It's just that they're not conforming. Yeah. That they're not following the same path as has been prescribed yeah. for the rest of the group. Well, it's what not conforming is. But they, they're taken away and they're having their hair forcibly cut. By firemen. By, by firemen, because they're, you know, they are the instruments. Yeah. And uh, we're told in voiceover that law enforcement can be fun. And it, it makes me think of you know, the whole, the anti-vax idiots and Black Lives Matter protests of the way these groups are characterised in the media. Mm. It's just, it's, it's just something in my brain connected with that. I, a lot of this film, I think it might just be specific to me, it seems to just fit certain yeah. bits of my brain. It just connects in, a, yeah. in an exactly congruent way. Yes, I mean, if, if nothing else, in, it, it, do you mean in terms of the way that the media, the media doesn't represent protests by a group of anti-vaxxers necessarily in the same way that protests by groups like, in favour of, say, Black Lives Matter are somehow seen as more sinister, or they're reported in a slightly more sinister way than the anti-vax stuff? I think so, yeah. Uh, I mean, you could say the same about Extinction Rebellion as well. Mm, yes, yeah. Who do disruptive but really sort of harmless stuff like putting up a big table in the middle yeah, so of the making there. people five minutes late for work. Yeah, yeah which is, you know, they're, they're causing difficulties, but they're not hurting people. No. Um, unlike the anti-vax people who try and break into buildings and scream um, threats at people yeah. in the street. 
Um, Monto comes home and he's got something with him, mm. um, which he concealed in a cupboard in the bathroom. And then we see him get up in the middle of the night and retrieve it. And it's a book. He takes it into the living room and turns on the wall yeah. screen, tunes it to the, the blank channel and just uses it as a light to read by. Yeah, because don't have reading lights, yeah. I, re I really like that as an idea. Yeah. And the book he's um, retrieved is David Copperfield. Yeah. And he slowly starts to read it and he re like, reads through the copyright page. He doesn't know how to read a book. No. So he literally, he reads all the stuff that you skip over because it's not important. And yeah, and that's a really nice, well-thought-out moment is that he literally, when you give him a book, he knows... He, he knows, knows how to He read. knows how it works, but he doesn't know how to... He, he's, 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 he's literally reading everything, yes, because he doesn't know that there were some bits... He, you don't read this bit. You don't read you know, the list of offices of the publishing company. Yeah. I remember my my nan used to get terribly offended by the fact that at the back of books there would be pages or there would be blank pages. Yeah. And she would complain about it being a waste of paper and they shouldn't be allowed to do it. And I didn't know at the time that that's just part of the process of making books is that if you don't have enough print, you end up with blank pages at the back. You can't cut the blank pages out or use them elsewhere. And because that's, it's part of like a predetermined amount of paper yeah, that you exactly. found into the book. Yeah, but it really used to offend my nan. And again, it was that same sense of somebody that didn't quite... Well, and me as well, because of the, I didn't understand books. So I didn't understand why there was all this stuff at the end that wasn't, wasn't needed. Mm. But, of course, this is the first written text mm. we have seen anywhere yeah. in the film. And it's... It's treated by the camera and by Montag as this extraordinary thing of wonder, this strange, fascinating artefact. Mm. As he's slowly working through the first paragraph. And, and he reads like a child as well, yeah. where he goes to the end of each line and then goes back to the next, start of the next one and picks up again. And he reads each line almost as if it's a, a single sentence. Yes. And, also, and reads very mechanically. There's no attempt to put emotion or to very... It's, it's, like, it's like listening to a machine reading a book. Mm. But the choice of text also is something I like because um, the start of David Copperfield is Copperfield himself narrating his birth. Mm. And this is the moment where Montag is yeah. almost reborn. Yeah, and I suppose as well, having having said that I didn't think that a single question from Clarice was enough to suddenly sort of get him, but but he's also gone through the, um, he's also gone through his wife's overdose at this point. Yeah. So, so, so actually in retrospect, there's more stuff going on in his, you know, going on in his life than I, than I initially thought. Um, and we cut to a children's park. Oh, yes. Which is having a routine search yeah. by the firemen. And, again, nobody... The, the, the fireman walks up to a woman, she's got a handbag, so he empties the contents of the bag on the ground and just walks off. And she just packs the bag up again because... 
this is normal. And it's it's Fabian as well, mm. who has almost no dialogue. And what dialogue there is is clearly dubbed because Anton Dufresne doesn't sound like that. Yeah. Um, but he's shown, I think, in these little moments to just be casually cruel. Yeah. There's a scene later where he breaks a, a stained glass window for no reason. Yeah. He also feels a pregnant woman's stomach, mm. just in case. Yeah, well, you never know. It might be one of those fake stomachs we've been hearing. With, so with books inside, of yeah. course. But, you know, I mean, you and I both know that feeling a pregnant woman's stomach yeah, yeah. is really, no, you don't do that ever. Particularly a stranger. I mean, you know, I think twice about mm. doing that to a friend, but unless, you know... At least not without being asked. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. And then they search a baby, and the baby's got a tiny book. A tiny little book, the size of, you know, not even, you know, smaller than the palm of your hand. And I can't, I possibly spent fun time, I can only assume that the, 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 the idea was to get the baby used to having a book, or hidden in, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's these times when the story becomes like a fable, mm. that you can't, you can't assume that everything is no, believable. Yes, you realistic. can't explain everything. Yeah, but um, the fire chief finds it, and the baby reaches up, reaches up for it. And the fire chief smiles and wags, wags, wags his finger. And there's another one of those moments of the screen blanking, isn't there? At this point, because is it Montag goes to search? Some... Well, there's there's another bit which is there's one teenage boy who's doing the whole wrap your arms around yourself and pretend that you're... Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, he's doing the Sean Connery from Diamonds Are Forever, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, pretend, pretending to be getting off with a girl. Yeah. And the chief just shoves him. It's like, say, stop doing that. Yeah. Because, again, it's the whole giving yourself the affection yeah. that no one else is giving you. Yes, getting a hug of somebody, yeah. Yeah. But Montag, as you say, he stops someone and feels their... Um, the the brass pocket, and you can tell that he's felt a book in there. Yes, yeah. And there's a moment's pause, and then he just lets him go. And that is the is the moment where half the screen blacks out completely, yeah. because Tr- Truffaut is saying, "Well, what can we do? Yeah. What can we do with this? Yeah, that's interesting and unusual." In the same way that the picture then, instead of fading to the next scene or fading to black, fades to white. Mm. Yes, and it does it as well. When on the scene where the chief has said that Montag doesn't have enough photos of the back of his head, the the the, the frame kind of circle circles down onto one of those pictures, doesn't it? Yeah. And and I suppose in the case of that, it's 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 giving something that it's giving significance to something that doesn't have any significance. Whereas this time round, of course, what the blanking out is doing is it's making it more significant because it may. The, the actual gesture of Montag finding the book's quite subtle, and I wonder if you had seen that across the full frame, it would have been a hot. You might have missed it. Mm. But by blanking half the screen in this case, you're making something more significant. Yeah. Well, in the same way, I think irising down on the the photo of his head is sort of that's the way Montag's attention is being focused. Yeah, down. that's true. This is this is something important. This, yeah. This little detail that I need to be careful of. Um, Montag's on the monorail again, and no, he's not. He's heading off to work in the morning, and he's being watched by Clarice and another woman. Yeah, watched and followed, yeah. Yeah, so there's a nice cut backwards and forward there between um, 
So the shots of Montague, I think, are handheld, but the reverses of Clarice and the woman following him look like they're on a dolly. And I think that's a nice... Mm. That Montague is sort of... He's sort of shaky in his outlook in the world, whereas the two women are confident and clear in their purpose. Yeah, in fact, something I don't think we have to... A lot of the scenes play for a lot longer than they would not... There's a lot of very, very long takes in this film. And there's not many cuts. There's a lot of scenes that just play out as kind of mid-shots and things, and it, it gives the film a very, very odd atmosphere at times. It's all part of this sense that, of, of the film having building its own sort of unique world, I guess. It's, I think, the decision to... Uh, the close-up creates intimacy. Yeah. And mm. it's a world without intimacy. Yeah, and I think it's virtually the book, David... Copperfield gets the first close-up almost in a way, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, they follow him on the monorail. And then as Montag's approaching the fire station, Clarice passes him in the mm. street and they get to talk and he, he notices that she's worried and isn't concealing it very well. Yes. And it's all very staged. Yes, yeah. They, they know what they're doing. So they go into the coffee shop nearby and... They, uh, as Fabian watches, always watching and listening. Yeah. And um, Chloe says that she's been fired from the school with no reason given. And Montag is outraged by this. Mm. And this shows his, his facade of um, uh, you know, detachment and everything. is is really starting to break down. He's getting yeah. emotionally invested in things. Yeah. Um, the same thing apparently happened to the last teacher and the staff wanted rid of her because she was different. She made the lessons fun and not just you know, learning things by rote like yes. Michael Gove wants you to do. Yes, and didn't stick to a timetable. Mm. Yeah. And Mont as they're talking, Montag absently strikes a match from the matchbook in the middle of the table as well. They watch a man um, approaching the information box outside the fire station. Yes. Because, as Montag says, he has a picture of someone who he's informing on. Yeah. It could be his noisy neighbour or the mother-in-law he doesn't like. It doesn't matter whether or not they're yeah. a real criminal. They're just being denounced, yeah. But he's casually saying, oh yeah, the system's totally corrupt and doesn't work. Yeah, everyone knows that. Um, and he's uh, the way they talk about it, the way it's sort of, he circles around the box, he's just trying to screw his courage to the sticking place. Yeah. Um, and eventually he sort of, he looks like he's walking away and Clarice is relieved, but now he goes back and he puts the, the photo in. And I suppose what they're doing, you know, they're, they're narrating it as if he's a character from the story. Yeah, you know, they're literally yeah. describing what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Montag says that they should go back to the school and that they should demand an explanation and she'll go, and he'll go with her. Because you know, he's a fireman, mm. and that gives her some weight. After, he'll go after he's had his promotion or something, isn't that what he says? Well, they're going to go straight away. Oh, no, that's... Yeah, yeah. Um, so they go down to the cellar to the phone exchange. I mean, you have this, this interesting, weird detail of this whole telephone exchange yeah. in the basement of the cafe. Yeah. With a woman wearing a fur jacket and stroking the fur. Yes. It's all a bit like... Um, is it... MDMA or something, where people become obsessed with how things feel. Oh, yeah. Um, so Clarice asks to be connected to Rodia Firehouse. Um, 
and uh, she sends, calls a message. She says, oh, this is, this is Linda Montag. Oh, Montag can't come to work today. He's very ill. And uh, the, the chief at the other end tells Fabian. And they do their, their special fire salute handshake. Yeah. Which is grabbing each other's wrists and then twisting around and backwards and forwards. When I showed this to Booker, that got a big laugh. Yeah, yeah. We could have done without that. It is quite funny. But it's, it's a nice bit of world building that they've got this special greeting. Yeah. Particularly because it's between the Chief and Fabian. And Fabian is the fanatic, yes. really. But I suppose it might also be, you know, it's not like we can ask Truffaut anything, but it might it might be actually intended to be funny and to... Yeah, maybe maybe it had, was put in there as a, as a, as an actual joke. I wouldn't have Does Truffaut so. do jokes? Well, the thing is, I haven't watched a single one of his other films. Yeah. Because as far as I'm concerned, this film is so perfect that I don't want it to be soiled by any of his other films from mm-hmm. not being any good. In the same way that my favourite novel is Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Oh yeah. I've never read another Neil Gaiman book. I've seen some of the films based on his work, mm. and they've been disappointing. Yes. But as long as I don't read the books, it doesn't matter. Exactly, it doesn't count. Um, outside the fire station, they're practicing their flame throwing as well. And they're using a- an actual camera crane from the production. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I didn't pick up on Yeah, they just sort of just refitted it. That whole backlot area, the um, the approach to the fire station, and the it's a set. I suppose it has to be. It's, it's an outdoor yeah. set, yeah. yeah. And it's actually noted by the editor that you can see just to the right of the fire station is an older looking building behind the wall. It's visible quite a few times. That was where that was his editing bay. Oh right. So it was literally about twenty feet from the set. There was yeah, there was an issue, of course, in the production that you know, it's the film made in England in English, and the director doesn't speak English. Um, the solution to which was, basically the entire production was conducted in French. Okay. Oscar Werner had worked with um, Truffaut before mm. on Jules and Jim. Um, so he spoke fluent French. Julie Christie spoke fluent French. Um, Tom Noble, the editor, just about knew yeah. enough French. Nicholas Rogue, director of photography, also spoke fluent French. And Truffaut had um, the uh, American agent from the uh, studio with him pretty much all the time. And she spoke fluent French because she was his contact. So she could act as interpreter if it was needed. So basically, the only time that they really spoke English on the set was among the crews. And when they were actually shooting, the rest of the time the whole production was conducted in French. That must have been an odd set to be on. It must have been weird for Truffaut that they would go off and, and talk in front of the camera and he would really not yeah, understand not, what they no, were saying. Yeah. He'd just kind of hope that you know, everyone isn't lying to him and they're yeah. actually saying the dialogue on the page. Oh, yeah. But um, there was some um, difficulty, though, because most of the cast and crew got on very well. Uh, in particular, Nicholas Rowe and Julie Christie were cited as basically being friends with everybody. Yeah. But um, since Jules and Jim, Oscar Werner had gone off to Hollywood. He'd made a couple of big movies there. And as far as he was concerned, he was now a star. He was lowering himself to be in this movie. The original plan had actually been to make the film in French. Right. But because of the budget and 
um, Truffaut's concern that he would need studio backing, he thought, well, I'm going to have to make this in English. Um, so the original choice to play uh, Montag was Terence Stamp. Okay. Then they were able to get Julie Christie, who was actually Terence Stamp's ex, which was awkward. Mm. And as pre-production continued and they couldn't find anyone to play Linda, it was suggested that why doesn't Julie Christie play that character as well? And by that point, Terence Stamp didn't really like the fact that he only had one role and she had two, so he left. And at the last minute, they were able to draft an Oscar Werner to take his place. And Julie Christie, you know, very fine actress, very easygoing, got on with everybody. Oscar Werner almost made it a mission to argue with Truffaut constantly. By about halfway through the production, they weren't even talking to each other anymore. And they would just go through intermediaries. Hmm. And this has a knock-on effect to the production, which I will point out later on. Um, but there are there are a lot of people considered. Uh, apparently, um, Jean-Paul Belmondo originally, um, uh, Paul Newman, Peter O'Toole. Okay, that would have been interesting. Um, Paul Newman, I think, would have been completely wrong. Yeah. I can imagine Terence Stamp. Yeah. I can almost wrap my brain around the idea of Michael Caine. Just about. Yeah. But yes, but Paul Newman would. It, it would. It turns into too much of a star world. Yeah, even you know, with, even with his best intentions. Yeah. I think Peter O'Toole is physically wrong. Yeah. I think he's too tall. But I can't imagine any of them being bad in the role. No. It's just that they're not suited for no. it. The way it turned out, the we have this odd international mix of. German Oscar Werner, English Julie Christie, Irish Cyril Cusack as the fire chief. Mm. Um, most of the supporting actors being English, apart from uh, Anton Different, who's dubbed anyway. Yes. So it has this odd, again, it's like a fable because it's not really set anywhere. No. The book is unequivocally set in America. But with the, the international cast and the English setting and the American backing. It's sort of this odd Neverland. Yeah. It, it does make it feel much more like a like a fairy tale yes, yeah. than a science fiction story. They arrive at the school and um, we hear from a class that they're reciting times yes, tables. Yes. But it's, it's not only the nine times table, but they're starting quite high. Mm. Like 11 times nine, 12 times nine. And by that point, you don't really need to know, you don't need to memorise that high, because you can just work it out. It just shows, you know, they're just being fed indoctrinated with this useless information. You don't need to memorise that. You just need to, you don't, it's the difference between learning a times table and knowing how to multiply. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you're not necessarily, you're not learning how to apply the knowledge. You're just learning... A thing to be recited. If you know how to multiply, you don't need to learn at times. Yeah, all. yeah. But that requires you to work things out for yourself. As they walk down the corridor, there's this nice reverse tracking shot with yes. the, uh, a contra zoom, borrowed from Hitchcock, of course, from um, okay, yeah. with the the corridor seeming to sort of stretch, stretch yes. awkwardly. 
and they're approached by one of the, one of the boys from Clarice's class, Robert, um, who apparently is frightened off by Montag's uniform. Yes. Now I don't know. Now you said you looked on the IMDb. Did you see who is yeah. billed as playing Robert? I call shenanigans on the, the this. Scene. Yeah, yeah. I looked very closely, and I honestly don't think that it is the actor Kevin Elder. No. I think this is this is a little pit trap that somebody has set so that when you know in years to come when somebody's writing Kevin Eldon's obituary, they hope that this fact will go in. No, I'm I'm calling for that until I actually hear Kevin Eldon stand up and say, with his own lips, that yes, he was the child in Fahrenheit four five one. I'm not believing this. I did contact him on Twitter. Oh, really? and Asked. He has not replied. Okay. Mind you, we all know that Harold Pinter was in Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. And Kate Bush wrote for it as well. Yes, yeah, of course she did, yeah. Yeah, she wrote it under that pseudonym of that man who was interviewed. Mm. So Montag hides around the corner, and another boy approaches. This one is recognisable because it's Mark Lester from Oliver. Oh, yes, of course. That really is him. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Oliver yeah, yeah. comes two years later, so it looks just like him. And he's just about, and he looks really shy and nervous. And is just about to speak when Montag puts his head around the corner to see what's going on. And the boy runs off. Yes, he does, doesn't he? So I suppose it could, because I, I kind of assumed, as I think um, Clarice does, that the kids have been poisoned against her. But actually on both occasions, it could just be that they're scared, yeah, that they're scared, scared of Montag, yeah. Yeah. And there's a very odd, quick moment where a <laughs> uh, a roller blind in a wind in a window set in the door rolls up, and we see what must be the headmistress behind mm. it. And it's a very quick moment, and the headmistress is Anton Differing in drag. Yeah, I didn't pick up on. But I saw. I, I I learned this later. I think let's add this one to the Truffaut does jokes pile. I think. I think it's the Truffauts doing weird experimental yes. stuff and seeing what works. Yeah. Because it could be it could be Fabian in disguise. Yes, exactly, yeah. But equally it could just be this is the face that Montag sees whenever he thinks he's being watched. So it's, you know, it's yeah. like we just see a quick glimpse of this person. So in Montag's mind, in his imagination, which is now working yeah. properly. It's always yeah. It's, yeah, that's it's the face of his enemy. It's the face of authority. I mean, it, it might just as easily have been Cyril Cusack, but he wasn't mm. available. That he's day. too avuncular. It's Cyril Cusack's character. Fabian is yeah, he's sinister. the sinister one. Yeah, Clarice bursts into tears and is almost inconsolable. Mm. And Montag promises that he's going to use his promotion to try and help her and, and yeah. sort the situation out. And he puts his arm around her and comforts her. And that is the most honest and genuine display of emotion we've seen yes. at any point in this film. Clarice asks him, you know, why why would a person like you be a fireman? And Montag replies, well, remember what you asked me? If you ever read the books I burn, says, yes. Last night I read one. And there's a really nice scare chord and it just fades mm. to black. And it's it's an interesting shot as well because it's looking down on Montag as he delivers that last line. Yeah. A sort of odd high shot. Because almost as though he is now the one under observation. Yes. He's the yeah. one who is 
being watched by the authorities, yes, exactly. so he's being made to look smaller, yeah. being made to look more vulnerable. In the middle of the night, Linda wakes up and walks into the living room and finds that not only is Montag reading, he is surrounded by books yes. and almost all of them are open. So he is, like she, with her tranquilizers, now he's getting his fix yeah. from half a dozen books all at once. And in particular, he's reading the Thieves' Journal, um, which I looked at. And a lot of the books that Montag reads specifically, I mean, a lot of the books that we see just being thrown around are just stuff that they had in bulk. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, odds and ends that, that Truffaut had that he didn't mind getting rid of or getting bashed about a bit. But a lot of the ones are chosen specifically. The Thieves' Journal is a book about a gay outsider okay. um, who turns vices into virtues. So someone who is deliberately amoral and going against the law, yeah. going against the, the, the line of society. Um, Linda discovers his whole library that he's hidden in the cupboard. And Montag is angry and says that you know, the books are then my family. And that behind every book is a man. Yes. And you could, I mean, you should say person, really. But the point is that he is engaging with the books and he's engaging with the people who wrote the yeah. books in a way that Linda cannot comprehend anymore. Yeah. And, and in a way that she's not that nobody is with the TV, sorry, with the cousins and things. They're, yeah. they're, they're things, they're passing, passing fancies. Yeah. They're ephemeral, but this is yeah. solid and real and permanent. And to illustrate that, he asks her, when did we first meet? Mm. And she can't remember. And noticeably, Montag doesn't answer the question. No. He doesn't say either, but he does say how sad it is that she can't remember. Yeah. Hmm. And then later into the night, we see Montag just reading aloud from the dictionary, just learning about the world yeah. in the most bald sense. And he's there's this sort of electric oil lamp that he's reading by, and he's in this white dressing gown with a hood, and it's like a monk yeah. studying forbidden knowledge. But the definition he's reading aloud is a rhinoceros. Yeah. Which I assume is a reference to the Eugenia Esco play of the same name which is about conformity. Oh, okay. All the people in the town are starting to turn into rhinoceroses, but the main character refuses. What, refuses to turn into he a rhinoceros? He refuses to turn into a rhinoceros. Well, this isn't going to end well. A few years later, there was a filmed version produced for the American uh, Film Theatre, which was this extraordinary project of producing film versions of plays that would be shown in very limited release, okay. that you'd have to buy tickets for in advance. Yeah. Like, a bit like NFT Live. Yeah, yeah. Well, these was that these had you know John Frankenheimer as director and really well known actors, and the version of Rhinoceros starred Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel. Wow, that's yeah. And it was on TV about twenty years ago, at one in the morning on <laughs> Channel Five, and I thought, "You have this movie. Why are you burying it?" Because they don't. No, because they don't know what they're doing. It's, it's the very definition of content. It's just a... They've just brought it as part of a package. The, the cast of the producers reunited in this brilliant, absurdist play from, a I think, a Nobel Prize-winning writer and showing it at one in the morning. 
on Channel 5. I mean, that's says, yeah. I mean, Channel 5 at the time didn't have any control over how bad the reception was. No, so but they had go. a lot of control over how bad the programming was. Yeah, I mean, it was either that or porn. Yeah, it was, that was, I think that was during Channel 5's soft porn phase, if it was about 20 or, years Or ago. a Japanese baseball match. So if, if you get the chance to see that, or any of yeah. the films in the American film, they did a version of The Iceman Cometh, which is unabridged and runs four hours with a really amazing cast. Yeah. They, um, they adapted um, Robert Shaw's novel, The Man in the Glass Booth. Oh, okay, yeah. A, a sort of a fictionalised version of the um, Adolf Eichmann trial mm. with Maximilian Schell. Wow. So amazing yeah, cast, yeah. amazing directors. But they're yeah, almost completely forgotten. Just, just overlooked, yeah. Oh, Montag arrives at the fire station and meets Fabian. And Fabian is surprised that he's arrived at the, uh, for work because he thought he was ill. Oh, yes, yeah. And Montag grasps the pole to go back up to the yeah the lounge area, but the pole isn't working for him anymore. And this comes after... He comes home and it's the door doesn't open for him, doesn't it? There's a bit where he... The, 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 his wife, um, um, Linda, has to go and answer the door and he goes, isn't the door working? Oh, yeah. And there's, there's a sense that the, the very fabric of society is rejecting him, yeah. Yeah, the doors, doors don't open him, the pole doesn't work, up or down, which is... Slightly... Well, he never tries going down. I think he's, he's worried about what might happen. Mm. Um, but it doesn't work when he's trying to go up. Yeah. Um, but there's another alarm. Um, there's fast cuts and lots of running around and activity. Uh, Montag forgets his helmet. And mm. as you say, he does avoid the pole. Yeah. And the chief notices as he's getting onto the fire engine. And as they drive off, um, the little boy, the second little boy, the one who isn't coming out of them. Yeah. Uh, says, oh, mummy, look, fireman, there's going to be a fire. And they arrive at an old house uh, where the woman that Clarice had been with earlier mm. is living. And she walks down the stairs inside and she quotes from uh, Latimer when he was about to be burned yeah. for um, as a martyr with Nicholas Ridley. And it gets literary. The house is searched and there are books everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Every possible nook and cranny, every, you know, un, just every, like in the like earlier Montag said in the, the lesson, oh, we saw last time about books that were concealed within the house when it was being built. Yes. Um, and this is where Fabian just smashes a window for no yeah. reason. Yeah, why not? Um, the chief brings Montag into an attic through a hidden door, and the attic is packed yes. from the floor to ceiling with books. He says that he's only ever seen anything like that once before. And notes that at one point in their career, all firemen wonder what books are, but they've got nothing to say. And he goes into this very long monologue about why they burn books. Yeah, yeah the philosophy. Of yeah. yeah. And it's, the I think, my favourite dialogue scene in the film because... Truffaut has clearly thought about trying to make his argument as completely mm. fair and airtight as possible. It has to sound totally reasonable, which contrasts with the remake quite poorly. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. 
um, the novels are you know stories about people who didn't exist yeah. and readers are unhappy because you know, they, their lives are, aren't the same as the ones they read in the book. Philosophers all just saying, you know, only I am right and it's just fashion of whether or not yeah. the lives are a matter of fate and chance. Biographies are just vanity, you know, people want to stand up and be different and write more and more books about themselves. There are over, over a thousand critics' prizes every year and they're all, you know, just worthless and people feeding people's egos. Where at this moment Montag is hiding a book. Yes, he is, isn't he? And it's a book about Caspar Hauser, who was the foundling who turned up in a town square as a teenager in medieval Germany. And once he'd finally been able to communicate, it was determined that he'd been spending his entire life living in a cellar and was now out into the outside world, which is another nice parallel with Montag. Yeah. He spent his whole life yes. concealed from the world and now he's opening up. Stepping out into it, yeah. The problem, of course, is that Caspar um, uh, Hauser was murdered and his assailant was never uncovered. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. But we'll skim past that. Um, the Chief talks about cancel culture. Yeah, and he kind of talks... Does he make a passing reference in his speech to the fact that everybody has to be the same? Yeah. Because that's the closest. There's a... Uh, I'm gonna, probably going to mispronounce it. There's a short story called, I think, Harrison Bergamon or something like Bergeron. that. Bergeron. Bergeron, which again is the same kind of thing, isn't it? There's They watch a ballet on TV, but because one of the ballet dancers has been judged as too athletic, he's weighed down with chains and lead weights <laughs> so that he moves in the same way as... Yeah, it's uh, it's just... No, it just, it, it just sparked a connection with that book as well. Um, he mentions that Robinson Crusoe was... The, the black people hated it because mm. he doesn't say black people obviously but he doesn't use the n-word no. unlike in the remake oh really where they're talking well, the remake is just the most idiotic garbage um, but it's or, by HBO yeah and normally <laughs> they've got a really good record yeah. they made Chernobyl yeah. um, instead of Robinson Crusoe they talk about Huckleberry Finn because all the references mm. to books are things that people would have read in high school rather yeah. than you know, anything that people might choose to read. So, oh, yeah, the, the, the yeah, people didn't like it because of his N-word friend. He says this to Montag's face. Montag is played by Michael B. Jordan, oh, who is black. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I don't know why that's in there. It's a very strange film and filled with stupid ideas. And it doesn't make any sense. It ends with Montag dying mm-hmm. uh, when having released a bird that's been genetically programmed with all culture so that it can fly off to Canada. Montag isn't married in this version either. So a bird? A bird has been genetically impregnated with uh, all culture and it's into its DNA. And there's also, instead of a big library, there's an autistic there's an boy. Egg. Oh, okay. There's an autistic boy who's memorised 12,000 books. Right. It's... That's very strange. Why a bird? I haven't the first <laughs> oh, okay. idea. Right, It's fine. Oh, because birds can fly free. Right. Oh, it's a metaphor. Right. Okay. Jesus. That's really... I think I posted on Twitter that watching that film was like listening to a meathead quarterback trying to write a sonnet whilst watching my beloved childhood dog being run over. It's total dog shit. I nearly bought it by accident when I was trying to... Yeah. Because Fahrenheit 451, ironically, not terribly well available on DVD. 
Amazon, a lot of the online stores kept directing me and I, to, to the remake. And I don't know if it's, I don't know ironically if the presence of the remake has kind of reduced the saleability of the old one, or well, whether it's even a licensing thing. Well, the original's still out on Blu-ray, and I've got that. I can't track the down a copy of the... I bought it in FOP less than a year, well, oh. more than a year ago, obviously. No, FOP, but had, recently, FOP had the new one, but not the old one. Maybe the DVD, because I've got the Blu-ray, maybe yeah. the DVD's fallen out of print. Yeah, I don't know, I, I had trouble getting it, but there were a oh. couple of occasions when I had a near miss and nearly bought the, lot, the wrong one. God, imagine if you'd watch that instead. That would have been awkward. I mean, one of the highlights of the 100 episodes is the time when my guests and I watched different films with the same title. Yes. And we didn't realise until we'd been talking about it for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. One of them was a Todd Haynes psychological drama about a woman alienated from her surroundings, and the other was a Jason State, an action movie. Okay. Um, the Chief also mentions Nietzsche, who was yeah. cancelled by the Jews. A book about lung cancer that was cancelled by the smokers yeah. because they don't want to be told things that yeah, they don't yeah. want to hear. Because no one likes being told that they're wrong. Mm. That's why they keep having riots about you know, uh, vaccinations and Brexit. And um, so there's, and yeah, that those people who read were yes, all snobbery yes. and you know you can't trust people who are too educated because you've had enough of experts. Yeah, yeah, they think they know better than yeah. You know, what about? inscribed on their gravestones um, and so you know high culture you know we can't have any of that yeah. everyone has to be alike we have to burn all the books Montag we can't have a copy of Mein Kampf all the books mm. yeah and that's a really interesting because obviously a lot of people quite, would quite cheerfully burn Mein Kampf so as yeah. you say that's this that's that weird moment of um, Truffaut being determined to be as fair as possible yeah I mean the, the argument only works if you take it seriously. Yeah. So letting the chief outline his philosophy in such clear, mm. well-considered terms, I think is a very good idea because it just it makes it much more believable as to how a society like this could take yeah. root. Um, Fabian puts his head around the door and says, the old lady won't leave. Um, so they say, oh, well, just we'll let her die as she lived. Um, they start spraying all the kerosene up yeah. because all the books they've dumped over the the, uh, the banister railing and they're all just in the, the yes, built the hallway of the building. Including, I think at this point, uh, and uh, apologies for the pronunciation, a copy of Cahiers du Cinema yes. in the background. Um, it's about like a collected issue or something like that. Um, and they just start spraying kerosene all over it and uh, Fabian smashes a lamp on his way down as well. Yeah, well... There's also a book of Salvador Dali as well. Yes. I'm not, sure, not sure why I sickle that out. but um, It gets a very, very long close-up uh, during the burning sequence. Yes. As the, as the pages are kind of being blown by the fire. There was a lot of editing in that scene as well because it, it was apparently very hard to oh, get the pages to blow yeah. naturally. Yeah. Um, but you know, they obviously don't want the woman to die. They say, right, we're going to count to ten, then we're going to set fire to it. Just, as she's just standing in the middle of it all. So ten, nine, and then she starts into the nine times table again. Yes, yeah. I don't know, I found that oddly shocking, the, the fact that they did, they seemed perfectly willing to let her burn. And maybe, again, it's a reflection of the fact that everyone's heavily tranquilised. 
that yeah, if she wants to die, that's fine. And there's no kind of emotional, oh my god, we can't possibly, or haha, we're going to burn the hot. This. Yeah, it's just yeah, if she if she wants to, that's fine. Well, yeah, and you say that, but Montag is the one saying this is terrible. You can't yes, yeah. someone do something. Yeah, he's giving himself away through his his yes. own empathy. As the woman pulls out a mm. box of matches and strikes one and lets the whole thing burn. Yeah. And the firemen just run for it as she collapses into the fire. And there's another bit of reverse film as yes. Montag stands and watches and takes a few steps sort of forward. forward because they couldn't get any footage of Werner. I keep doing that. They couldn't get any footage of Oscar Werner stepping towards the fire. Yeah. Let's reverse some footage of him stepping away. Um, but um, the woman dies in the fire as the whole house goes up. Mm. And Montag arrives home as Linda is hosting some friends. And they are the most anodyne simpletons. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, they're talking about one of the cousins, aren't they? Yeah. Because that's essentially, come round to my house and watch TV. It's like they're all seven. Yeah. yeah. And one of the, doesn't one of them mention, oh, there might be a war or something like that. Oh, yes, yeah. And um, there's a, isn't there an inference that someone has, someone's husband has had an accident or done something terrible. They had a, there's a very, I think it might be a, a, a line that's kind of been carried over from the book. If you're saying that in the book, people are just like going out and drive and crashing cars and things. Because there's a line of, they have a whole conversation about how people don't die. People don't die in wars. People, yes, yeah, people. That, that only happens to other people's wars. Yeah, people crash. Some people die in car crashes, like Gladys's husband. But yeah, you know, but yeah it's all, yeah, it's all the very remote. Yes, war is, Huh? War happens to other people. It happens elsewhere. It happens in faraway distant places. Yeah. Mm. It makes you wonder, um, thinking about it, I'm not, I don't expect you to answer this question, um, but if whether or not you know anyone who died of COVID. Uh, Indirectly, yes. Um, so do I. It, yeah, but it only ever happens to other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, at this point, my pen was starting to have problems. <laughs> Were you thinking about the new version of Fahrenheit 451 and you were pressing too hard on the page? <laughs> no, I hadn't watched it yet. Oh, well, right. It's more that when I write quickly, my handwriting turns into illegible scribble. Um, Mon uh, Linda asks Montag to join mm, the group. And yes, sit because he doesn't. He wants to go and sit in the bedroom. He wants, yeah. yeah, he wants to go to and be by himself. Just seen, uh, there was a point he walks in and it's like, Montag, come and join us. And he stares at them and then storms in. And, I, and that, this was the point when I started to feel that, that he, he's verging into deliberate cruelty. But not so much this bit, because then I remembered he'd just watched somebody burn to death in front of him. He's really not in the mood to put up he's with any of this nonsense. Pretty bad, he's had a bad day. Uh, and he just wants to sit by himself yeah. and look at the newspaper and be antisocial. Yeah, but who but, but you can't be antisocial. No. You have to join in. You have yeah. to be out at the party. You can't just sit in the kitchen and talk to people normally. Hmm. There's a lot of myself in this discussion, I feel. <laughs> so he um, he tells her about you know, what happened with you know, the, the woman mm. and the, the books that were burned. 
and the, the other people, the, the, the women in the room, say, oh, that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Oh, that's I, right. I read, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I read on Facebook that that never happens. Because it, it, there's a, they're, they're talking, and the cousin is saying something, and he finishes the sentence, doesn't he, by saying, it's that, I, I forget exactly the line the cousin's got, but he kind of caps it by going, and she burnt to death on a pile of her books or yeah. something. And they go, oh, Montag, if that's a joke, it's a very poor quality, but very poor taste one. Or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, the only other people's husbands get killed in wars. Yeah. Uh, and getting, I mean, getting run over or jumping out of the window. That's, not, that's a normal death. Yeah, no one said anything about jumping out of the window. Um, and he, it just says, like, you're not people, you're just zombies. You're not living at all. Yeah. So he storms off and comes back in again with his copy of David Copperfield. Right now, sit down and listen. And he starts reading from chapter 48 of David Copperfield and the death of Nora. Yeah. And the scene apparently went on for quite a long time because it's quite heavily cut down. Yeah. Uh, I Because David Copperfield's in the public domain, so you can check online. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of dialogue they're missing. As um, Copperfield narrates how... He wanted to turn his child bride into a woman. Yes. But she started to become ill, and although he cared for her, she became sicker and sicker. Yeah. And as I was saying, I think he regards this as a metaphor for his marriage, that that, that Linda is not... She's not becoming physically sicker and sicker, but for want of a better phrase, she's becoming mentally... Uh, emotionally. Emotionally sick, yeah. Yeah, and... I think, as I was saying, I think this is the bit where I think you could, there's a case where he's, he's being cruel to her because Linda's not, she's not a bad, it's not, it's society's fault she's the way she is. And getting angry with her and it just, it, it's pointlessly cruel, as I say. That's the only way, of, and to do it in such a public way as well, in, in a way that, as she says later, nobody will want to be friends with her again now. Well, I'd have to take Montag's side and say that she's better off without all that <laughs> crowd of dimwits. I don't think he's... I, I wouldn't say that he's being cruel to her. He's just... He's been through something... Yeah. Something, he, he's never had to confront the idea of someone being prepared to die for their books. I suppose... And he's, he's starting to realise just how important this is and empathising with other people and empathising with how that woman must have felt. Yeah. And he wants to show them this is how important this is. But so if, he reads this. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. No, it's okay. So he reads this passage, and one of the women, as she's listening, starts to cry. So moved by the words. And she says that she'd she'd forgotten about it. Got, yeah. Oh, oh, what is it? Um, pain and something, something about and something, and, and suicide. No one mentioned suicide. Interestingly, she kind of says something about she'd forgotten, I'm, power, I'm obviously paraphrasing, she'd, something like she'd forgotten how it felt to feel or something. Yeah. They talk later about, don't they talk about mentally reconditioned, they, they re-educate readers? I just wonder if it's possible that she's a re-educated reader. Possibly. And it's just sparked something in her that, that she'd, she'd forgotten that she knew. It's just interesting that she's the only one that has that reaction. Hmm. But I just think 
Is this the point? Are we up to the point in the story now where Montague is just bringing loads of books and he's not even really even bothering to hide them around the house or conceal them from Linda at this point? She knows. No, she's I mean, she's already found, so she knows he's doing it. And it feels as well like he's treating her with a degree of contempt that he feels that she's so drugged out that she's not going to take any action. I, I don't know, as I say, I think. I think he's being as nice as he could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as the the friends all leave and um, Linda does complain, oh, no one will want to be friends with me anymore. Yeah. Montag just starts bringing out piles of books to read. Yes, this is, yeah. So no, no, I've got, I, have to, I have to catch up on the remembrance of the past. And that night he has a nightmare. Mm. And Linda watches him as he's asleep, which I thought was a... Yeah. Like she's wondering what has happened to the man yeah. that she married or even if she can remember what he was like when yeah. they married and he dreams of him going down the school corridor and then uh, like a view of the monorail yeah. or the view from the monorail and the hail of books falling down into the the stairwell of the house with Clarice in, in the yeah. place of the woman um, what have I written there? oh and there's a uh, as a, a, a shot that plays backwards of him waking up. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked up and, if that was a backwards shot. And then there's a really beautiful match cut of that, of, of his face to Clarice's yes, face. Yes, it's an incredibly slow crossfade, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which is very Nicholas Rogue, I would say. Okay. The way, I mean, Nicholas Rogue's um, signature style is the manipulation of time fracturing of time and it's very obvious where I've got it from Nicholas Rogue did Don't Look Now yes which is the red coated glimpses of red coated yeah. per, just interesting of course that all the way through this they use red as a colour to stand the red fire station the red there's other things that are very the very red the fire engine even Montag's pyjamas yeah they're all very very bright shades of red it's just interesting that it's an almost certainly a coincidence, but just the fact that there's that connection there, even if it's one I've invented. I think it's just because it's such a, a, yeah. a strong, bold colour, and you know it, it connects to fire, it connects to danger. Yes, that's true. Yeah. In the the colour palette of Don't Look Now, um, it connects to the the standing out against the yeah. very wintry scenery in Venice, and also the fact that. Um, at the beginning of the film, the uh, the drowning of their daughter wearing the red coat happens at the same time as um, some solvent or other being spilled onto a photograph, and then the red uh, ink or pigment spreading over the picture. Okay. Um, but at Clarissa's house, it turns out the firemen have come. Yep. And her uncle tells her that she has to go. She packs a few things quickly, escapes through the skylight, and we get a view up through the skylight of the stars. Yes. And it's this, like she's escaping up into into starlight, into the heavens. Yeah. And it's this oddly lyrical, I mean, the whole film is filled with lyrical moments of this, moments of poetry escaping from the fabric of this repressed world. Yeah. But that one sticks out because it's the only one that feels like it's nighttime. Yeah. Um, in the house, Linda wants to redecorate. Oh, that's right. Yes, she's suddenly woken up with a new enthusiasm, hasn't she? Yes, she wants to put that chair there and this, yes. 
yeah, she's got the sudden new bee in her bonnet of what can she do next that's completely inconsequential and superficial. Um, Montag is not feeling well, having slept badly. Yeah. But he's going to work anyway, and you know, because this is his last day. And then they said, well, what about your promotion? He says, well, that was before. Hmm. And she effectively gives him an ultimatum that it's her or the books. And Montag doesn't answer. Yeah. He goes to Clarice's house and finds that it's all been boarded up. And uh, manages to talk to the neighbour. And they have this odd, stilted conversation where the neighbour is really weirdly spaced out. Yeah. And they did this simply by letting bits of the scene, bits of her side of the conversation run on and um, muting Anton, uh, Oscar Werner's, I nearly called him Anton Differing this time, <laughs> muting Oscar Werner's dialogue. So there were these long gaps in the conversation before she answers. Yeah. So she's this very sort of spaced out, like she's heavily tranquilized too. Um, Montag is sort of confident that Clarice and her uncle will be released, mm. but the neighbor notes that theirs was the only house that had no television yeah. aerial. Uh, he approaches the firehouse as the chief is bullying one of the recruits outside. Um, and he's just, he's just yelling at him and saying, oh, have, haven't you got a head? Yes. Which, it does sound like it's like the sort of thing you say when you're trying to be angry, but you can't think of anything. Yeah. And it... <laughs> um, so he asks the chief once he's inside, oh, the chief isn't here at the moment. Oh, well, I'll, I'll just wait outside his office. Yeah. He goes into the office by unscrewing the porthole window yeah. in the door and reaching through and unlocking it and searches through the records looking for Clarice and her uncle. Um, earlier on in the film he mentioned uh, the chief mentions that uh, he has had a medallion there. Personalised medallion or yeah. something. Yeah. And he's oh it's my, my special medallion. Like, oh, I'll see that you have one Montag. And outside um, the chief is being given the files mm. for the overnight arrests. He's, oh yes thank you. I've had this very nice personalised medallion made up, and I, I think you should have one. And there's quiet from it says, I already have one, sir. <laughs> That's a joke. Yes. Yeah. But the chief walks into his office and catches Montag, and he just manages to waffle. Yeah. Um, and says, uh, Montag, and the chief thinks that Montag's after the house. Oh, I'll see what we can arrange. And, uh, but by the way, how how did you get in? Yeah, and this is another one of the, and, and the, the the lines invested with an odd kind of significance. And there's probably another one of those sinister musical stings underneath it. And it's accompanied again by zoomed in footage. Yeah. So the whole that whole sequence has a it's investing significance into something that I don't again I don't know if it has any. It's mm. it's odd, and I ended up rewinding that sequence a couple of times because I just I kind of kept thinking I must have missed something, but mm. yeah. But Montag faints. Yes. And it's not even a fake faint; it's a real yeah, faint. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Linda, meanwhile, goes to the firehouse and puts Montag's picture in the yeah. information box, and 
it's hard to tell if she's unhappy or ashamed. Ashamed of what she's doing, ashamed of mm. Montag. But she feels that she has no other choice. Yeah. And she doesn't seem even remotely as hesitant as the man who was there no, before. No, but I suppose you could argue that she's bought into the myth that that Montag will be re-educated. Maybe she just thinks that she will get back. She just wants things to be as yeah, they are, yeah, just nice, wants, yeah. safe little bubble. Yeah. Um, Montag leaves by monorail and goes back to Clarice's house, where he he meets her. Yeah. Uh, but and she asks for his help because there's something hidden in the cellar, mm. and it's his job to find things. Um, it's a list of information, of addresses of sympathisers. And Montag eventually realises that it's in a vase. Yeah. Because it's something that's not book-shaped. And Linda tells him about the book people. And when she mentions it, Montag mishears the good people. Yeah. The reason for that is a problem with the translation. Oh, really? That in French, book people is les hommes livres. Oh. And Montag was to have misheard it as les hommes libres, the free people. Okay. But it doesn't yeah, work yeah, in English. Yeah. So. But I like that Montag instinctively makes the connection between books and good. Yeah. Um, but he's got his own plan. Hasn't yeah, he has, he has his own plan now to, to take the system down from inside by hiding books in his colleagues' houses. He denounced it. And the system actually seems flabby enough that that might work. But they yeah. obviously don't ask any, you, you just turn up, There's you denounce somebody, you turn up and there's some books, and well, obviously they're, um, they're secret readers. Yeah, and the system will just eat itself. Yeah. We'll burn the pyromaniacs out, he says. So they go their separate ways, and they acknowledge that they won't see each other. Again. Yeah. The relationship between Montaigne and Clarice is really beautiful. It's a, it's a romance, but it's never... It's so underplayed. Yeah. There's such obvious chemistry between the two of them that he he owes her so much and she clearly likes him. Yeah. And at first one, he says, oh, we'll see each other again. And she says, no, we won't. Why pretend that we will? And he says, yes, you're right. And there's just the scene of them standing in the garden looking at each mm-hmm. other before turning away and walking in opposite directions. And in the book, Clarice is not, not only is the relationship between the two of them not romantic, but Clarice dies off screen. Oh, really? That's interesting. Linda mentions casually that uh, Clarice's parents moved away after their daughter was killed in a car accident. Oh. Yeah, and it's just... It doesn't have the same emotional weight because the character is handled yeah, so yeah. differently. But imagining that in this film, that would have been devastating. Yeah. We could cope with not seeing Clarice again, but for her to die in such a... Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's intimated that it was some kind of government-sponsored hit in some way mm. or something like that. But I'm glad they don't do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
Linda is packing to leave, and the first thing she packs is a huge photo of herself. <laughs> well, you know. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, again, it's, it's the intimacy turned inward. Montag is... She I, moves a mirror or something. Does, or she, does she take the picture off the wall and a book falls out? Yeah. And she goes, Ugh! Yeah, and like, she kind of like, flicks it away. Like it's a rat. Yeah. Montag is pacing backwards and forwards by the pole, trying to work up the nerve to hand in his notice mm. or do whatever. Um, it's the fact, I suppose, that he's still enough part of the system that he, he doesn't, he can't, he, the idea of just going is inconceivable. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah, it's the fact that he still feels he has to, he has to, you know, he has to follow procedure. Mm. But he's persuaded to go one last on, on one last call, which of course is his own house. Um, and Fabian glances at him sideways mm. as he realises where they're going. They pass Linda, leaving with her suitcase, saying that she just couldn't bear it anymore. Uh, and the chief decides to leave the search to Montag, because uh, he knows. Yeah. after all, he knows where everything's hidden, he knows his way around. But as he's clearing all the books out, he manages to pocket just one. Yeah. And there's a, there's a nice bit of dialogue that it's just in passing, I never noticed it before, they refer to the flamethrower as the sparkler. Yeah, no, I don't think I picked up on that. I like I like that line. But um, Montag picks up the flamethrower, walks into his bedroom and just tortures the yeah. entire room. No books in there anymore. Yeah. Um, then into the living room, fires it at the telescreen. Yeah. Nope, had enough of all of this. He's... Uh, he's, he's burning down his old life. Yeah, that's the sense, isn't it? Yes. But it's... It's almost like a lack, uh, a kind of. What have I written? <laughs> um, it's a cleansing fire. He's yeah. he's bur- he's burning. It's not just burning down his old life. He's burning away the person he used to yeah, be. It's a phoenix, you think? Exactly. Um, the um, the chief taunts him. And says, "No, we're working for man's happiness. And we've always been fascinated by fire." And we see among the books are Lolita, Desard. Kafka, Mad Magazine. Yeah, I, and I quite, I, I genuinely, get, I, I, I kind of responded to the fact that, that they'd taken the trouble to make sure that it wasn't, I don't know what, it's not just, it would have been too easy for it to just be a pile of improving books, for it to be all the acceptable, you know, lots of Shakespeare, lots of Jane Austen, lots of, but the fact that, no, they took the trouble to, I loved those Mad Magazine paper, paperback books as a kid, and I really, I really like the fact that one of them's in there, and another joke. The last one of the last books we see is a Spanish crossword book. Oh, which they just threw because they thought it was funny. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's not really much you can learn from a crossword book. No. But it's it's a puzzle. It's a way yeah. of improving your thinking. Um, the chief finds the book in Montag's pocket and tries to throw it in the fire as well, but Montag turns the fire. Yeah, flamethrower on him and burns him. Yes, and the chief's got a gun, which I don't think I've realised. No, before. because it, it's you know, it's black against black on yeah. his uniform. But um, with the house burning down, that or not because it's fireproof, yeah. and always has been. Monto makes a run for it. He runs past the monorail. He throws off his helmet, and there are announcements in the street mm. that you know, Montag is wanted for murder. Come out into the street. 
and people walking out of their tiny little yeah. bungalows in this little new town. Those have they like little they're holiday cap chalets. Yeah, they're still they're still there up on the Alton Estate. I don't know if they're for. I, I kind of I've always vaguely had the impression that they might be for pensioners or something like that. But Maybe. they're very as you say they're very odd little odd little properties, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but the, the shot, it's a really beautiful shot. Mm. It pulls back as we see the, the, this, this car with the um, loudspeaker on the It pulls back and pulls back and pulls back until a ladder comes into view and Montag climbs up the ladder yeah. into, into close-up. And we see on television the, his his rear view. Yeah. Because that's what you're going to see when he's running away. I guess so, yeah. Um, he manages to get out to the country by the river. Oh, because earlier... Um, Clarice mentioned the, the, the route to get to the book yes, people yeah. to follow the river until you get to the railway line and follow the railway line or something like yeah. that um, he gets to the river and he hides in a boat mm. as in the distance the jetpack cops take off yeah. in the worst special effect mm. in the movie because you see them in the distance and it doesn't look good and you see them in close up in front of a screen and, and it just one, looks worse one of them's kind of spinning around slightly on his curvy wire and it just looks dreadful I don't yeah it's such an and the, to drop the hound to drop the bloodhound because you can't no do this drop the, that shot it just had they've had helicopters in previously I don't I don't understand why that shot is there it looks bad it must have looked bad at the time it's just strange it's it's a, it's a real glaring weakness yeah uh, it's only it's 30 seconds if that but it's it's really peculiar but it does give us the moment that shows the bad relationship between uh, Werner and Truffaut oh, which is uh, Montag has covered himself over in the boat with a tarpaulin right and he reaches out over the tarpaulin mm. But the hand is actually not Oscar Werner's. That was a reshoot. But Truffaut went through the whole crew and he found the most nicotine-stained <laughs> hand right. of any of the crew. And that was the man he chose to double for Werner. Wow. Pure vindictiveness. <laughs> so that he could have the last word. Fair enough. Yeah, get the last laugh. But... Um, Montag manages to hide long enough and makes it to the railway line. And there is that optical zoom that starts close on his feet as he's walking along the railway line and mm. pulls out. Uh, and you see him yeah. walking along in, in full length. That's clearly a, a process shot. Yes. Yeah. being filmed with the zoom. And he keeps going until he gets into the forest at the end of the line. And a man greets him. And does the man's voice sound familiar? Hey, I've subsequently found out that he's the man that narrates the credits. Yeah. But yeah so. um, he was actually the, the second time they did the opening credits. The oh, original okay. opening credits were narrated by the cousin from television. Oh, that would have been. I think that... Why did they change it? I think that Truffaut felt that it didn't sound right, that it needed to be a bit more authoritative. Okay. Because this, this actor, Alex Scott, has a very strong, yeah. uh, strident voice. But he's very pleased to greet Montag. He's delighted to see him. And um, he says, no, you can come and watch your capture on television. Mm. In a little railway carriage they have. Um, and they watch someone who looks not really anything like Montag 
running around the plaza outside the fire station, trying to get into the fire station as though he's yeah. has to be forgiven and getting shot by a helicopter. Yeah. And it's an odd that the state must always be, that there has to be a resolution to these things. The state must always be seen to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, it's a very, it's an appropriately totalitarian thing to do, I guess. Mm. I feel sorry for the poor guy who was just killed. I, I, I kind of assumed he wasn't, you know, I kind of assumed he wasn't killed. That it was just, it's probably, but, but yeah, actually, given the nature of this, it probably was somebody that was due to be executed anyway. Yeah, Jesus. Or yeah, someone who just happened to look like Montag who was dragging from the street. Because as, as they're shooting down onto the street, the dust is being kicked up by yeah, bullet strings. Maybe it was just some poor bloke that happened to look a bit like the back of Montag's head photo. <laughs> if anything, it looked a bit more like Graham Stark. Um, but the... Um, the man finally introduces himself and apologises for not doing so earlier. I'm the, jo- I'm the Journal of Henri Brewer by Stendhal. Yeah. Um, and he hands Montag some clothes that he can change out of. And Montag comes out of the uh, railway carriage and his new clothes are black as yes, well. Yeah. Um, but the man with the apple is back. He's sitting on the oh, yes, he is, the, uh, the wooden yeah. barrack into the railway line eating his apple. Um and there's someone reciting over the radio and um yeah walls in the carpet yeah. yes um the journal introduces him to some of the other people is oh, that's alice in wonderland over there alice with the looking glasses around here somewhere um that's plato's republic and there's wuthering heights oh, that was the, the corsair by byron uh that's the pilgrim's progress over there cutting down a tree he ate his book so that they couldn't mm. burn it and um a woman comes up and says, "Ah, oh, here she comes. Look at her blush." And a young woman says, "Oh, oh hello. I'm the Jewish. Que- I'm the Jewish question by John Paul Sartre." And she turns bright red. Yeah. That was the film's costume designer, who got so uh, blushed so much yeah. on camera, and they, I think they did a couple more takes that they just added an extra and said, "Oh yeah, she blushes a lot." Yeah. <laughs> One young man introduces himself as the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Um, there's The Prince by Machiavelli. Um, and Pride and Prejudice is in the Pride and Prejudice, but um, there's two Pride and Prejudices, Volume 1 and yes. Volume 2, and they're twin brothers. And apparently they call one Pride and the other Prejudice, but, they, but the, the two of them don't find that funny. And coming up the path farther away is Clarice. Mm. And the last main music cue of the film kicks in at this point I say kicks in that's not an appropriate term it yeah it arrives and it's this really beautiful wistful theme in a minor key the book ends with Montag escaping from the city as a nuclear war starts Mm. and the city is destroyed Bradbury has admitted he's not happy with the book. Okay. That he had to massively expand his original manuscript in order to reach a minimum word count that the publisher demanded. So the book has a lot of padding that he's annoyed about. And this is one thing that he said would go, that there's a very long, detailed, lyrical description of the, uh, the bomb falling... 
mm. being about to destroy someone's house, being about to kill Linda. And that's all padding. All of that goes in the mm. movie. The city's still there, nothing's changed. But instead we have this, this dreamlike ending to the movie. Uh, Clarice walks past the man with the apple and takes a bite out of it for him. There's a kid learning learning a book from somebody else. It's learning the Weir of Hermiston. Yeah. Um, and that's fascinating because, as you say, I mean, the, 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 the discovering that the woman that blushes is the costume designer makes more sense. The kid, I don't mean this in a bad way, the kid is obviously not an actor. Um, and he gives, well, and you can see at points where he's he's pulling all these experiences these facial expressions and ticks and screwing up his eyes as he tries to remember bits of the book. And yeah. it's just, it's just a fascinating piece of naturalistic. It's literally, it's just, it, you've pointed a camera at somebody and told them to repeat dialogue. And that's exactly what it is. It's not a performance as yeah. such. It's, it's literally somebody just doing it. I, I don't know who the kid is. Any idea? Well, nope. no. Okay. Oh, it's Kevin Elder. Yeah. yeah. But yes, an old man is reciting mm. the book and teaching it to the young boy. Um, the uh, the journal says that the book people kind of sort of happened, that some people loved one book so much that they couldn't bear to be parted from yeah. it, so they learned it and committed it to themselves, so that one day they'll be able to recite things back into print. Yeah. And Clarice reaches over Montag's shoulder and picks his book out of his hands, and he turns around and looks at her. And the look on his face, mm. it's confusion and delight and surprise. And maybe I'm just reading all of that into it. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading the film as well. But it's, it's the emotional climax yeah. of the movie. The whole story is about a society where empathy has been crushed yeah where the means to connect to other people has been removed and this is finally refuted when montag looks at someone and, and reacts and reacts yeah. so strongly and he doesn't say anything mm. that means the whole world yeah and the book that montag saved of all things, is Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery yeah. and Imagination. Uh, Clarice has just finished learning a book herself, The Memoirs of Saint-Simon, which is a seven, uh, sorry, nine-volume work of uh, recollections from the court of Louis XIV and XV. A document of history. Okay, yeah. The, remem the remembrance of the past. Yes. And we see the boy continuing to learn the Weir of Hermiston, as he recites the line, he died as he thought he would as the first snows of winter fell. And the picture f fades through to snow falling on the forest. Mm. That was filmed the next day. Yeah. Truffaut was initially concerned by the footage that they were shooting in the forest. They thought it, he thought it looked, just looked a bit ordinary. Yeah. It, 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 couldn't really get a handle on how to uh, yeah. give it a bit of energy. And then overnight, there was a snowstorm, and it was still snowing the next day. And with that line of dialogue, 
yeah. fade through to the snow on the ground. And the film's final scene, which Bradbury said is the most beautiful scene in cinema. He loved it. Okay. And the boy is now reciting the book himself as all the book people walk through the snow reciting their own books. Montag reading aloud from his committing it to memory. And the camera moves around and eventually settles on a shot looking out onto a lake as the, the books pass in front of us, a whole library pass before our eyes. And the music swells and we get the first on-screen caption. Mm. The end. And a final sting of music from Bernard Herrmann. There is elegance and beauty in the film's construction, and it's somehow hit the exact sequence and collection of nerves. It fits exactly with my brain and my personality. It's a story that it's rooted in the pure love of literature and personal expression. It's totally sincere, which is the yeah. the, the fact that I prize above all others in, in art. And it's about the freedom to grow beyond yourself, not just be confined in the the box to which you've been assigned or uh, slowly desiccate inside, you know, the, mm. the environment to which you're supposed to exist. It's about not just walling yourself in with your own ideas, but looking at things that are new and different and, and something greater and something more beyond yourself that you would never even mm. consider. And that's why this podcast exists. To, to think about things differently, to expand your thinking beyond conventional thought and conventional ideas and conventional opinion. Maybe only in some small way. But I've been doing it for a hundred shows. And if I can do it for a hundred shows, then anyone can do it for just one equivalent show. So if you had to learn a book by heart, commit it to memory, with the act of memorising itself taken for granted, which book would you choose? Three Men in a Boat. Didn't even have to think no. about it. What about you? It's not a book as such because it's never been published as one volume, but Spike Milligan's autobiography. Okay, or well, The War Diaries. Yes. Yeah, I can understand that. Because I think that encompasses a whole of life experience. I mean, it would be a thick book. Yes, yeah. But if um, if Clarice could memorise nine volumes of Sansa's yeah. memoirs, then I'm sure I can manage. So, what did you think of the film? Yeah, I genuinely I liked it. Um, I thought, like so, I went into it aware that you had a certain fondness for it. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not 100% sold on the ending, but I, I'm willing to, if, yeah, I'm willing. But it, why not, though? I suppose, I suppose it's because what they are doing, it doesn't seem to me to be reading for pleasure, it appears to be reading for duty. And that's not, I don't know. Well, they say that 
they're preserving it. Yes, this is true. That and they are enjoying, I suppose they are enjoying the books that are other people. So the fact that they've taken on one duty among hundreds. I wouldn't like to meet the James Patterson wing. Because <laughs> there must be a there must be like 400 really fed up people over there. Um, but uh, I suppose that's it. I suppose there was a sense that these are not people that are reading for pleasure. But actually when you think it through they're memorising one book out of duty, but they have all the other books that they can then read if they want to. Yes. So I suppose, yeah, maybe it's perhaps not quite as... I don't know quite what the word is. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not actually sure what the right word I'm looking for is. It's not so much of an anonymous duty as it is. It's just... Preserving... It's being part of a, being part of a library, I suppose, yeah. Preserving art and culture for future generations. That is a duty, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll happily concede, but it should be a pleasure as well. Yeah. And you should know, professional librarian. Well, I may have once suggested um, burning a load of books for a joke in a meeting. I quite quickly learned that the one thing you don't do in a meeting with other librarians is joke about burning books. I burned a book once. Oh, really? Which book? It was a very poorly written guide to Doctor Who. <laughs> and in my defence, it, it was incredibly poor and mm. has been reprinted numerous times and is still terrible. Wow. I also destroyed a copy of a Harry Potter novel. But that was because it was already falling to pieces and I needed to use the pages to stop a window in a train from rattling. That seems, yeah. That's what they would have wanted. I'm not sure. I, I am genuinely trying now to work out if I've ever actually intentionally set fire to a book. I don't think so. I mean, the the, the, the terrible thing, the, the, the great secret of working in a library that nobody will discuss. I may not have burnt any books. I've thrown away a lot. Into the recycling, though. Because what else are you going to do with books that are too tatty to read? Well, as long as they didn't go into landfill. No, I don't know. No, they, are, they go to a better place. They become new books. Yeah, hopefully. Well, I hope you got something out of the uh, out of watching the film. Um, if you have an idea of a, a film that's very important to you and that's meant a lot to you in the same way that this one means a lot to me, then maybe we can cover it in another hundred shows. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast with a full one hundred episodes available. So please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so pop a penny in the box, please, to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, keep watching, keep listening, and keep enjoying the rain. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, Hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.